This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Revolutionary for Our Time, The Walter Rodney Story, by Leo Zelig. Walter Rodney was a scholar, working-class militant, and revolutionary from Guyana. Strongly influenced by Marxist ideas and having lived through numerous socialist experiments in the 1960s and 1970s, he remains central to radical Pan-Africanist thought. In this book, the first full-length study of Rodney's life, Leo Zelig critically considers Rodney's contribution to Marxist theory and history and the contemporary significance of his work. As Olufemi Taiwo puts it, through exacting research, exacting presentation, and careful analysis, Leo Zelig offers a remarkable contribution to radical thought and practice worthy of Walter Rodney's legacy. Find a revolutionary for our time at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20, respectively. A Revolutionary for Our Time, The Walter Rodney Story, by Leo Zelig, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is the second one I've done with historian Lily Geismer. I interviewed her first back in 2019 on her book, Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. This interview is on her likewise excellent second book, Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. In a sense, this new history of the New Democrats is her first book's sequel, part of Geismer's ongoing mission to uncover the deep history of the Democrats' neoliberal turn, a politics that took us through welfare reform, free trade, financial deregulation, the wars on crime and immigrants, the privatization of public education, post-Cold War military intervention, the destruction of public housing, and the reorientation of the party from working-class voters to upstanding professional suburbanites. The skeletons in the closet of In This House We Believe Liberalism are indeed legion. This book is about what Bill Clinton meant when he said he was a, quote, new kind of Democrat. The same went for the entire Democratic Leadership Council, or DLC. It was the new Democrats' mission to, quote, reinvent government so that it handed over more of its responsibilities to the free market, and also so that government itself operated more like a business. For Hillary Clinton, it was also a way to reinvent feminism, celebrating entrepreneurship as the way to empower women. For the New Democrats, poor people in places had been left behind, a relic of the past, a problem to be corrected through inclusion into the 1990s future-oriented and globalized high-tech economic boom times. The reality that this obscured, of course, was that this poverty and precarity was fomented by this very same system, and that new economy poverty was in fact a sign of worse things to come, a sign of the future, not the past, something that became painfully clear during the 2008 financial crisis. The task of the day, though, was to get poor people off welfare and into work, out of public housing, and into personal wealth building. Mass incarceration, then, 
was in part a disciplinary regime to produce those new entrepreneurial subjects and to punish those who insisted on deviance. After Clinton took office, the Rainbow Coalition resistance to both Reaganism and rising democratic neoliberalism, led by Jesse Jackson's 1984 and 1988 presidential campaigns, was tamed. The anti-corporate globalization movement, or ultra-globalization movement, that exploded at the 1999 WTO meeting in Seattle might have been the beginning of a new left coalition. But that fizzled in the wake of 9-11 with the launch of the War on Terror. It would take another decade till Occupy for today's more coherent American left to reemerge. This is the history of how the Democrats helped eviscerate what little of a social safety net existed in the name of market magic. It's the history of how we came to view entrepreneurs as our society's best to be emulated. It goes some way, in other words, to explaining how we ended up with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos atop our social, economic, and political hierarchies, and why Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton could be lionized as feminist icons. It's also the history of the electoral problem that Democrats face today. They abandoned the working class and its agenda for suburbanites and professionals. As we take stock of the failure of unified democratic government to deliver meaningful, let alone transformative change, in the wake of Trump and look toward a possible Republican landslide this November into a possible Trump comeback in 2024, it is beyond clear that this trajectory that Bill Clinton and his fellow New Democrats set into motion has been nothing short of catastrophic. Two quick things. First, please rate and review us on iTunes and tweet about this podcast. You might just help introduce the dig to someone new. Second, please support us at patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of any size at all gets you a weekly email with our excellent newsletter. Monthly contributions of $10 or more, and we will send you a book or books in the mail or a gorgeous dig mug or tote bag. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Dig. And I do want to take a quick moment to talk about The Dig's newsletter. It is really very good. And if you like The Dig, you really should be reading it. We send it out by email to everyone who supports us on Patreon.com slash The Dig, even just a dollar a month. It's also available for free for everyone at TheDigRadio.com. I posted a link to the most recent newsletter in the show notes. It's Mac Penner writing about my interview with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Alberto Toscano, and Brenna Bandar to explore what it means when Ruthie says that abolition is another word for communism. He writes, quote, One way to approach this issue is by examining the history of communist parties. Scholars of 20th century communism have long emphasized that membership in a communist party was not a simple demonstration of political support for a particular agenda. You could not be a communist on the side. Being a member of a communist party was something like a way of life, a risky and total commitment made in the belief that it was possible and necessary to change the world. People who made this commitment in the previous century contributed to great achievements and experienced incredible disappointments alike. Give the newsletter a read. The link is in the show notes. And support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig to get that newsletter every week by email. If you are a Patreon supporter and you are not receiving those emails, email us at digradiopod at gmail.com. Before we get started, one detail I want to sort of 
obsessively, pedantically clarify, Goldman Sachs executive Robert Rubin first served as Clinton's assistant for economic policy and as director of the newly created National Economic Council, or NEC, before becoming Clinton's Treasury Secretary in 1995. Okay, here's Lily Geismer, a professor of history at Claremont McKenna College, where she researches and teaches about recent political and urban history in the United States with a focus on liberalism and the Democratic Party. She is the author of Left Behind, How the Democrats Failed to Solve Inequality, and Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals in the Transformation of the Democratic Party, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, New Republic, Jacobin, and Dissent. I will link to her first dig interview in the show notes. Lily Geismer, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back on The Dig, which I always say has been the best interview I've ever received on a podcast. So I guess for all the other people who do podcasts, that insults them. But I'm, I think you give the, <laughs> um, the in such substantive interviews. I'm really excited to be back on the, on the show. That is incredibly kind. Your book is also incredible, as was your first one, as was your first interview. So there. There's one version of the history of the neoliberalization of the Democratic Party, one I think I've repeated myself, which presents Ronald Reagan's greatest achievement as Bill Clinton, that it was, in essence, a reaction to the Reagan revolution. You write, quote, when Democrats appear in these accounts, they are largely disorganized and weakened, defensively creating policies and electoral strategies in reaction to Republicans. What do we miss when we don't take the New Democrats' political project seriously as the New Democrats' political project, a project about doing well by doing good? And what role then did the rise of the New Right play? Yeah, so this is a critical question and actually was really one of the things that sort of has launched my thinking about this project and and does relate to my first project too, which I think is both in terms of the history, but also the way that kind of professional historians and I think journalists who talk about kind of post 60s history, which is really a story about the rise of the right, especially when they sort of think about both in terms of politics, but also in terms of neoliberalism. It's this story where Clinton becomes lumped into it. And I really wanted to sort of think beyond that of kind of where only thinking about the new the Democratic Party as this kind of weak party that's in defensive reaction doesn't really give much of a roadmap for understanding both the kind of current tensions within the party um, that don't that aren't aren't explainable through that through that lens. But I actually think it also lets the um, lets the Democrats off the hook in very different ways. I mean, there's this way that the story has been told, especially about Clinton and I think also about Obama, that it, everything was just done in kind of reaction to the Republicans. So this idea that any and especially around these kind of market oriented policies, that this was just sort of and that goes to the kind of classic story of triangulation, which is often how the Clinton years are talked about that it was kind of stealing the right's best idea by sort of turning to the market. And I wanted to understand that that what what the trajectory of the party is, that it's not just it's more about kind of a broader story of transformation and continuities and changes and to actually understand um, the fundamental intent behind some of this thinking, because that actually became implemented in policies in various different ways. And so to sort of think about this as not just a kind of strategic reaction to the Republicans, but to actually think that there was a kind of genuine ideology behind and um, behind many of the kind of policies and sort of agenda of the Democratic Party 
and where it goes from the 1970s to the kind of end of the Clinton administration, and I would say beyond it, too. New Democrats didn't so much believe in the right-wing libertarian ideal of a minimal state so much as using the state to shape desirable outcomes through the market. What did Clinton's promise to reinvent government with his with his new covenant mean? What role was government supposed to play in this globalized unipolar market world of the 90s? Yeah, so this is a critical point, and this also goes back to the and, and my book itself doesn't doesn't use the term neoliberalism all that much, but I think it's what the other way I always describe it is it's kind of telling the democratic version of neoliberalism. And so the the part that you brought up is kind of idea of a, of a minimal state is the kind of classic Milton Friedman version of neoliberalism. And what I found is that actually in the the kind of what would be called like a democratic version of neoliberalism advocated by the New Democrats, they still believe in a place for government and this idea, but that government needs to be reinvented. And one of the key, and that's actually the name of a, of a book by David Osborne and then Ted, Gable, Ted Gabler. Osborne was affiliated with the DLC and, the, and their think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute. And it's an interesting thing, like it, the, it's not part of kind of common discussion, but it was hugely influential in the late 80s and early 90s um, was this idea of that government needs to be reinvented. The vision in that book, which the New Democrats and especially Bill Clinton and Al Gore took on in office, is the idea that is kind of government as catalyst. Um, and so the purpose of government is to kind of create linkages between the public and private sector. And in many ways is to sort of ask the private sector to do the work, to do work that was once the responsibility of the public sector. So there's a lot of different ways that this this works, um, but it's kind of you can turn to the private sector to, to fulfill kind of traditional liberal goals or traditional things that were sort of within a social welfare state under the kind of previous democratic administrations like the Great Society or um, or the New Deal. The other side of the reinventing government idea um, was the idea of making government itself more efficient. Um, so sort of streamlining bureaucracy and to sort of bring in market tools to the actual practices of government so that you can kind of use the what what is effective sort of con- conceivably effective about the gov- about government about this private sector, sorry, and make the government more effective. I think that's a really critical part of this. It's not always just about trying to sort of make profit um, and sort of seeing the private sector as this kind of mechanism for profit, but it's actually seeing it as a more effect, uh, like efficient and effective mechanism for achieving particular um, what would be traditional liberal ideals. You write, quote, the New Democrats' distinctive view of the market and the role of government has been consistently overlooked. The roots of this democratic version of neoliberalism were rooted less in the free market conservatism of Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman and more in the liberalism of the New Deal and the Great Society, with its commitment to public-private partnerships and its faith in technocratic expertise to solve social problems and capitalism to create economic stability, security, and growth. In fact, a faith in markets as a vehicle for social change was not new to the New Democrats, but a fundamental feature of liberalism through much of the 20th century. This argument that New Democrat ideology, in fact, grew out of democratic ideology, rather than being just a Republican-inspired break from what had come before, what were these perhaps unexpected New Deal and Great Society roots of a politics that that has done so much to undo the legacy of the New Deal and Great Society? And this is, I mean, this is a critical point. And I think this goes to like what a lot of historians have done. I mean, so it's, it's what I always tell my students that like the New Deal is really complicated. And so it's like, I mean, it, there and that there's a lot of dueling components to it. So how we think about this, but I mean, th- this idea that like 
a critical part of the New Deal was was an effort to kind of when you think about it, save, but like kind of remake capitalism and make capitalism work in particular ways. And so there's always this kind of market oriented dimension to liberalism. You know, it's in the progressive era even, but like onward through the New Deal and then in the Great Society, who who believe in particular a particular role for for markets and and also a, a really strong faith in um, in economic growth as the sort of the mechanisms to create other kinds of sort of prosperity. I think the really key difference that I see and I tracked through this through, through the book, and I do this in the the kind of phrase of doing well by doing good, is that the New Deal and Great Society liberals um, believed in those as two separate things. So they believed in kind of that you'd have the doing the doing well, which is like economic growth through various markets. And this is kind of traditional Keynesian economic theory. And then you have the doing good, which is the kind of the which is like the social welfare state as a separate category. That's compensatory welfare program. So, you know, the, the I think we often kind of overthink how universalist um, much of the New Deal was. I mean, it was a limited social welfare state in various different capacities, but those were all sort of separate programs and that you would, they, they, you want both to be going on, but that they're slightly different from each other. And so I do think, I mean, I do think that the, many of the architects of these kinds of programs understood that you had to have economic growth in order to, to have, be able to, to provide certain kinds of social welfare state. But the idea was that, that that was kind of for the government to step in when things weren't working. What I see as critically different about the um, the New Democrat approach is it actually is trying to sort of d- combine those two things, and so it's actually saying that the market can and um, can serve um, for doing the work that was once just the sort of protected by social welfare. So the idea, I mean, and I think the classic example of this, and this goes to kind of the critical thing of undoing certain aspects of the New Deal welfare state would be welfare reform and sort of doing um, and welfare to work. Because the idea to welfare to work is that you're actually bringing in, you're you're bringing new workers into the labor markets. And so the market itself can solve that problem. So you don't need to get, you don't need to check because, or you don't need like cash assistance because you're going to get that through a job. Um, and that's also keeping the economy going because you have more workers. And so it's this kind of, the other word that I think they use a lot is this idea of it's like a win-win and that's how they're kind of fusing those two functions together. Another core aspect of the New Deal that um, the New Democrats under Clinton eradicated is Glass-Steagall. Um, and so that's this kind of critical deregulation dere- or separation of the financial markets. And the idea was that if you have competition, that will create economic growth and that will be good for Americans. Um, and so it's thinking about it in sort of similar terms of like doing something that will help people be have more economic security, but it's doing it in a way that's kind of using the market towards that as opposed to like protecting Americans from the average American from the market. New Democrats, you write, quote, uniformly provided small or micro solutions to large structural or macro problems. Though Clinton's, you write, quote, programs actually had more in common with the war on poverty than Clinton would have cared to admit. They were a relatively small response to a very large pressing problem. How did New Democrats go about disparaging those macro solutions to macro problems, or at least what we retrospectively think of as macro solutions to macro problems, the New Deal, the war on poverty, public housing, public schools and welfare, declaring them all failures, even though the war on poverty, the the most sort of recent iteration of an attempted macro level solution, in fact, was never really that well funded at all. 
Yeah, I think this is really critical. And so there's this way I've been thinking, I was thinking about this a lot, kind of the end of working on the book, because so much of the kind of the ways in which, and it, it really actually predates Clinton and the New Democrats and goes back to kind of the um, their earlier iteration, which is the kind of the Watergate babies or the Atari Democrats of the 70s. But a lot of the, the way that they kind of positioned themselves as new was this idea that they weren't, it, it wasn't even really against the Republicans. It was more against this kind of older style of Democrat. Like that's really the idea of the New Democrats is we are a different iteration of the Democratic Party. And the ways in which they, they often used kind of almost a straw man version of New Deal liberalism, and especially of the Great Society, to promote it as these big bureaucratic programs. So they were using this. And also, I think, oversold, like their other big thing was that they weren't doing things that are redistribute, like were redistributive. Um, and so it was like we're, we're focusing on economic growth as opposed to redistributive solutions. One of the, thing, the, the big things is that that actually overemphasized how redistributive the the New Deal, but especially the Great Society was like the, the Great Society was explicitly not a redistributive program. Lyndon Johnson was opposed to welfare, like welfare. And that's the whole idea of kind of, you know, not a hand, um, not a handout, but a hand up and all these programs of like empowerment. So it often re- represented the Great Society um, inaccurately as to what it was accomplishing. And I think that that's right. Like the the new what is often mis remembered. And I think, I don't think this was, I think this came from both the kind of new Democrats, but I think also the Republicans and the Republicans still do this about the war on poverty was that it was actually a lot of small programs. And there wasn't a lot of it was these kind of public private programs turning to kind of nonprofits to kind of do the work that was, you know, instead of, instead of like fully government run, it was kind of government overseen. So in their efforts to kind of critique what they were do with what the great the great society and war on poverty was doing and how they were going to be kind of new they actually sort of um reused many of those older ideas i want to turn back the clock for a moment and talk about the deeper historical context here what would become the new democrats really burst onto the national political scene with gary hart a colorado senator who shocked everyone by winning the 1984 democratic presidential primary in new hampshire and he at the time was known as the yuppie candidate which importantly, was a neologism of that era. And he was also known as a leader of this cohort, which included Bill Bradley, Michael Dukakis, Al Gore, Paul Songus, and Tim Worth, a cohort called the Atari Democrats, a name given to them for their emphasis on reorienting democratic politics towards this this high-tech future. But before they were Atari Democrats, they were, as you referenced earlier, they were the Watergate babies, congressmen and I do think they were mostly, if not all men, elected in the wake of Nixon's impeachment. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And all white, just, just, just oh, yeah. <laughs> So all white guys, uh, the Watergate babies. Draw that trajectory out. Who who were the Watergate babies and how did they become the Atari Democrats? Yeah, and this is another critical piece of how they are rethinking what the New Deal was, which I alluded to as well, which is about their to the Atari Democrat title, which also has to do with the kind of ways in which they were reimagining what the New Deal and Great Society was. So the Watergate babies first sort of arrive on the scene and the aftermath of Watergate and Nixon's resignation in in the 1974 election. And they um, and that title, actually, as I mentioned, is not actually in, in some ways inaccurate in that they weren't really running against the Republicans and more about the kind of older version of the Democratic Party. And it was mostly white men um, in their 40s, uh, 30s and 40s, who represented largely sort of middle class suburban districts. Um, And a lot of what they they ran on was kind of this effort to kind of clean up Congress. And they were against the kind of older 
dynamics of the Democratic Party, especially its focus on bureaucracy, but also in kind of its older kind of um, kind of negotiation style, backroom politics type, type like sort of backdoor or back leaning. The other thing that they didn't believe in is that the party, they felt the party had become too beholden to what they called a special interest. And, and this was especially, which which includes in some ways, although they were sort of evasive about this, groups of color and women and the feminist movement, but especially were upset about the, the Democratic Party's ties to organized labor and felt that this, that relationship was really dragging the party down. Um, and so who they kind of were uh, particularly opposed to it were people like Hubert Humphrey and so, um, and um, Tip O'Neill. And as, when Gary Hart won. He was a he was a senator from Colorado when he won. He said like we're not going to be a bunch of little Hubert Humphreys, um, and that was an especial especially especially dig at his relationship to the labor movement. The other component of their 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 opposition and antipathy to labor wasn't just sort of electoral; it was also economic. And so the the key piece of the um, the who the Watergate babies become, which get then gets sort of rechristened in this the great name Atari Democrat, which is like my favorite title in American politics, even though it comes from Chris Matthews, which is like <laughs> unfortunate. But um, <laughs> one of the things about them is that they they also understood that the 19, the other core thing that was going on in 1974 is the country was facing this major recession. And, and as I argue in this book, but it's been argued by many other people, that wasn't just a kind of, that wasn't just an economic crisis, but it was actually an intellectual crisis um, in the fact that it proved the recession that the Keynesian model was just not was not working. That you couldn't kind of you couldn't balance employment and um and um, unemployment and inflation in the ways that kind of that that Keynes and, and his acolytes had had argued. And we all know the story about how Hayek, Friedman, et cetera, the neoliberals, how they responded to that crisis with the ideas that they had laying around. Yeah, and that there's this kind of that there was this sort of search for new solutions. Like that's kind of a way of I, I think it's actually a really critical way of sort of thinking about what's going on in the 1970s. And so that's where that's where Hayek and Friedman get new like this kind of new attention to their ideas. But the other side of this was the new the the kind of people of the Watergate babies, Atari Democrats, which was a different slightly different solution, which was to kind of turn to new industries and just particularly the post industrial sector. And this is something I looked at in my first book, which was why Democrats come to embrace the um and come to embrace tech, and they sort of see that like the 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 solution is not to turn to kind of older, that older manufacturing, it was on the way out and that it was going to be sort of sent off, you know, it was, was being sort of, it could be completely outsourced um, to, to the global South. And instead that the, that the kind of solution to the U.S. economy lay in three sectors of, of tech, trade and finance. Um, and that was really what they started to push as a kind of economic agenda. And their relentless focus, particularly on the tech industry, is what, um, what, what leads to them to be called um, the Atari Democrats. It is Tim Worth and, and Gary Hart, who become really, really proponents of this, as as well as Al Gore, and then interestingly Bill Clinton as well, who is a kind of slightly later. He actually ran. Um, this is like for good, good. Like, if you want to get to like your political trivia, he ran for Congress in 1974 and lost. So he actually would have been an Atari, like he would have been part of the kind of Watergate babies, but he lost, and then he he runs for governor of Arkansas four years later. But he's a big believer in kind of this idea of kind of the salvation of Arkansas. And really, the nation lies in kind of this post-industrial vision. To draw this history back, I think, just a little bit further, I think it goes back also to, like, the new politics that emerge from, guess what I'd describe as the more reformist edge of the new left, back, in other words, to the politics of Eugene McCarthy's failed 1968 anti-war primary candidacy, the McGovern Commission, and then George McGovern's failed 1972 anti-war general election campaign for president. The Clintons were both involved in the McGovern campaign. Gary Hart was 
McGovern's campaign manager. Yeah. How did the politics of this corner of the new left, if it's fair to call it a corner of the new left, I think maybe, how did it lay the groundwork for the neoliberal third way? It can be hard for me to wrap my head around this trajectory because even in 2016, all the way through 2020, we saw Clintonite types pointing to McGovern's blowout loss to Nixon as the reason why we couldn't have Bernie be the Democratic nominee. Totally. And this is the argument that gets be brought up time and time again. I mean, first of all, there's often this way of kind of overselling how liberal some of those candidates were, which is always my thing about, you know, my first book does this with Mike Dukakis. Like there's a narrative about Mike Dukakis being this like liberal that he was not. I think actually in some ways you can see some of that with McGovern too, that he was not quite the like lefty that he often gets promoted to be. One of the things interesting about Clinton to fast forward is he actually like one of the reasons that that the DLC people become see him as a viable presidential candidate is because he has these kind of new left bona fides or this idea that like he would be someone who the like the liberal it's not even left it's liberal liberals would also get a lot would get on board with because he was part of the McGovern campaign. I remember my my parents had T-shirts that had around the inauguration that had him playing the saxophone. That was huge. That's actually, it's so funny. My, my, um, my husband has that. We were talking about what's, what's your oldest piece of, um, clothing recently. And he has one of those too. He was like, it's my piece of clothing from like the 1992, uh, elect with, 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 um, with Bill Clinton playing. So I guess maybe those are all, they're rampant on eBay right now. I don't know. Um, I, one thing of writing this book is people have definitely trotted out their like Clinton paraphernalia to me. And I've, I've been getting, it's like, I should do like a, article of some sort, or maybe put it on like a website of all this fascinating Clinton, Clinton paraphernalia. But anyway, the McGovern is really interesting in that, like that campaign, who he's attracted to it. Um, and I look at this in my first book a little bit more, but um, was, was a lot of people who are like these kind of technocratic type figures who believe that like they're like in, in like trans things like transparency and sort of making, and that's really what the McGovern Commission, the McGovern Commission reforms were trying to do, was to make it work in a more effective, what they saw as a more effective way, um, which was in some ways giving voice to different kinds of people. But actually, I mean, ultimately, who does really well in the McGovern Commission reforms was actually like middle class uh, whites, like actually gain a lot of power within the system in a way that's not always rec- recognized. But they, um, that's the kind of that legacy of kind of a, of, I, I think of like the technocratic dimension of liberalism is what sort of carries on into the people who then are the Atari Democrats who then join the DLC um, or the New Democrats. And I think the other piece is there is actually two tributaries to the um, to the DLC would sort of converge together. One is that group, the kind of Tim Worth style um, people who really believe in sort of economic growth through through trade, kind of um, using um, more market-oriented solutions. And then the other side who are in Congress, the other side is the kind of more moderate um, Southern Democrats. So what ends up happening, I mean, the story of the New Democrats, and so the, the um, a lot of in the early 1980s, there's a whole group of kind of people in Congress who are working on this. They had a, they had a, um, a organization called the Commission, Committee for Party Effectiveness. They put out a, um, like this big report that's kind of on, it's about the kind of road, the, about the kind of road to opportunity, which really talks about this idea of kind of, I think I counted like the most used word is like investment. They're really critical in this idea of like kind of, we need to kind of 
invest in post-industrial sectors of the economy. Um, they're building on a lot of the ideas of these ideas of kind of, in, of post of industrial policy, which is really post-industrial policy, which were advocated by people like Robert Reich and then and then um, Lester Thoreau. So they have these like sort of critical, these critical sort of ideas that are coming forward. And this report was, this whole process was guided by a Louisiana Democrat? It's a, yeah, it's um, Gillis Long. Um, and so he was from the Long, the kind of the famed uh, Huey Long. Louisiana Democrat Long fam, Huey Long family. Although he, he himself actually was sort of broke from his relatives, and he supported the civil civil rights. Um, and he had underneath him, he he became the the um, the head of the House Democratic Caucus. Um, I'm sorry to lose people if you're not like super into the ins and outs of congressional politics. Um, but he brought into when he wanted to kind of take over, he wanted to in the aftermath of an, of Reagan's win in 1980 was like the party needs to be. We need to kind of do something new and like we'll do this through the um, through the caucus. He brought in this guy, Al Fromm, who was a um, had been a staffer and was actually working in the Carter administration to be his chief of staff. And that they and it also worked in the war on poverty. Yes, he worked on the war on poverty in um, in Mississippi. So he but was frustrated by the Carter administration and. When he when he comes in, they're kind of thinking about what uh, something new to do, Um, and they come up with this this group called the Committee on Party Effectiveness, which are trying to kind of come up with a new agenda. In many ways, Gary Hart's nineteen eighty four campaign becomes like a vessel for this argument, and so he really like sort of built it becomes a kind of symbol of this these ideas. And as you mentioned, did did actually do quite well. And I always say like I think the nineteen eighty four Democratic primary is a super interesting moment of like kind of to see like these different paths of where the party could have gone in various different ways. So Hart, um, Hart ultimately loses to Walter Mondale, um, and then we could talk about it too. But Jesse Jackson, this is Jesse Jackson, is also a critical player in the in the Democratic primary. Even at the they, at the Democratic convention, there's um, this group. So when Mondale is going to take accept the nomination. Um, this group of of Democrats come together. So you have the kind of wing who is focused on kind of Atari Democrat wing. And then you have this group of Southern moderate Democratic governors um, who really see the kind of key to the the future of the Democratic Party is to kind of go after white moderate suburban voters. So this is people like Chuck Robb in Virginia that was like really critical to his race. Um, and so they ultimately decided to come together to form a new organization called the Democratic Leadership Council. And that um, they announced their formation and like right after the 1984 elections so in early 1985. And some of this, to, this is a long-winded answer to the question, but what they're trying to do is really to say that like the, they blame Mondale for everything. And like, this is a symbol of the failures of the Democratic Party. Um, he's too, what Mondale was even more than, um, he, he was the, Hubert was his mentor, so he's like sort of seen as his successor, but he was actually even closer to to organized labor than Humphrey was. And so to them, he sort of stood as like everything that's wrong with the Democrats um, and the, the kind of symbol of failure. And after he loses in a historic landslide election, that only confirms that the, the Democratic Party needs to do something different. And that's where the DLC comes from. But interestingly, in 1988, Atari Democrat Michael Dukakis's loss to George H.W. Bush doesn't lead to them declaring themselves failures. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, they, he doesn't, um, he also, as a side note, neither Gary Hart nor um, Mike Dukakis are members of the DLC, um, even though they're, like, very much, like, I, and I, I asked Al from this when I interviewed him, like, they were very much in line with his, their thinking. They just, like, it has to do with more with, like, particular Democratic Party palace 
drama that neither of them actually joined it. But um, but yeah, they don't see themselves after that. And they do, I mean, and they do appropriate some of that narrative of like the failures of Mike Dukakis, that he was a Massachusetts liberal, we need to do something different. But actually, if you, on the policy substance, like he, it's very, very much aligned with what the, um, what the DLC and the New Democrats were arguing for. So after the 1984 election, the, the Democratic Leadership Council, or DLC, becomes the organizational vehicle for the New Democrats. And ultimately, we'll get this to this later, but to Bill Clinton's successful presidential campaign in 1992. But, but throughout the 1980s, the DLC's rise is energetically resisted from the left by Rainbow Coalition leader and two-time presidential candidate Jesse Jackson, who quite hilariously mocked the DLC as the Democrats for the leisure class. And and the DLC was also attacked by organized labor, other black Democrats, and just plain old establishment liberals. What did that resistance to the DLC look like through the 1980s and up until Clinton winning the nomination in 92? Yeah, so I mean, that's this is very much like they, they, they faced opposition. And I think it goes to the kind of the place that there were further ten- tensions. And actually, I mean, this is interesting. I don't want to, I'm, I'm appreciating you not jumping to the present, which is what people always do. But I mean, this is this place where you can actually see some of these tensions very much playing out that we see within the Democratic Party today. And that's where like the kind of 1984 NAD campaign. And I think the other thing to say is that there actually were these, act- these active voices of opposition and different strands within the party at this particular moment. So there was, I mean, and, and just Jackson was the kind of most vehement or most public opponent and did have some great, he also called, later called them like this, like this, this sort of suburban, the Democrats of the suburban class and had all these names, these great kind of, I accuse them of trying to suburbanize the Democratic Party. The one thing about the DLC, I mean, when they, they formed, they were all white men and particularly um, mostly white Southern men. Um, Matt Lasseter always tells me not to say that they were all Southern white men, but there was because of, because not blaming everything on the South, there was a lot of people from the Midwest. There were some, several people from the Midwest and the West. To get part. Dick Gephardt. And so actually, so this is like Dick Gephardt's involved and um, Dick, they decide to make Dick Gephardt their first leader because he's um, because he would give them like a non-Southern vibe. Um, so he's from Missouri. And a lot of the Atari Dems are from Massachusetts. And some of the Atari Dems are from Massachusetts. Um, and they're from I mean, they're from more from all over. And um, so but because they're all white men, it gives a particular kind of gloss to their image. They actually do try to, and so they get a lot of, they get a lot, attacked a lot on that when they first form. They actually do try to sort of um, move beyond that. And they include some, they bring in people of color um, and um, and some women um, to try to kind of diversify their image. But very much they are this kind of image of kind of white, white men dominated. And I think that there's, there's, there, I mean, one thing I will say is like, I had not realized until I worked on this. So people always ask me like what I was the most surprised about working on the book. And I had always seen the New Democrats or like of the like Mike Dukakis vein that I had looked at in my first book as kind of just sort of oblivious or like ignorant of organized labor. Like it just was not on their radar. Um, and that's kind of where where you have the kind of fusing out of of labor. What I found for in this book is actually like outright hostility to organized labor and that they're really trying to kind of marginalize labor's voice within the Democratic Party in terms of both in terms of its place electorally, but also its place in terms of policy. And then the other thing I think that's really critical about the DLC and which I try to look in my book at is like oftentimes they've been looked at purely about their political strategy, but they also did have very clear ideas in mind and a very clear kind of ideological agenda. So they're not just trying to like kind of win elections. And I will talk about their particular electoral strategy, which is important to how they 
what, how, and why they come to be. But they also really want to change the ideological tenor of the party. I mean, that's kind of part of their idea that we want to, we need to change the ideas and that goes back. That's, that's actually like critical to their vision as well. And the things they're trying to do, um, I mean, sort of, and especially this idea of kind of, of reinventing government, which sort of comes later, but is kind of part of their vision, um, goes against what a lot of people within the party sort of believe. And I think that there's this idea that there was, there was kind of different paths and different ways forward that they could have gone. And that's kind of where they stand at this, um, at this particular moment. Um, then, in 1988, the 88 election is interesting in that, like, there's actually a bunch of, it's a, a relatively crowded um, Democratic primary field. Gary Hart reruns, he leaves in scandal. What was it called? Mo- monkey business? Monkey business, ship- yes. The ultimate the, the, monkey the, the, business. The, the, um, the, the boat that he was caught on with a woman who was not his wife? Yes. Um, <laughs> so, great, a great, like, a great sca- a political scandal name. And you, Al Gore was one of the, ran in that election, as did Joe Biden, who was, I should note, was a founding member of the DLC. Ultimately, the DLC decides not to support Biden because they actually don't think he's, like, ideologically pure enough. They, like, find him too much of a maverick and they can't quite, they don't think they can, like, he's aligned as much with their vision. Um, Al Gore, they do support strongly. Both of them lose. Um, and then you have... Mike Dukakis wins the um, wins the um, wins the primary, and it's also Jackson's second run, and Jackson's second run, which is really important. Um, and so Jackson, you have a Jackson second run, and it who which in some ways broadens his vision in various different ways. And Jackson is putting, I mean, on the table like really, uh, I, like really progressive ideas, and sort of bringing those into the into the conversation in a variety of different ways. In the aftermath of the the 88 election, so as you said, that they don't like, they're not upset. They don't say we should like change direction totally, but they do, the um, DLC issues this kind of their own version of like an autopsy of the election, which um, by two political scientists, um, William Galston and Elaine um, Kmark, and they call the politics of evasion. What they this document sort of goes after is like, what's the, like, what, what's been the problems of the Democratic Party going for, like, now, why, why do they keep losing and what do they need to do to win? Um, and it's actually a really fascinating agenda, like, sort of document instead of agendas. And basically, what they argue, it's, it's basically, it's a sense of like, which are the two ways that the Democrats can win? Um, and they're mostly focused on, they're over exclusively focused on the presidency. So like what the Democrats need to do is focus on winning presidential elections. Um, and that's their, that's their path to being viable. And the other thing they argue is that like the way for Democrats to win is to go after kind of what would be swing voters. Um, and so people who are already voting, especially, and especially voters who are drifting towards the Republican party. Um, so moderate white Southern, I mean, suburbanites and, um, and kind of those somewhat of those kind of Reagan Democrat types, but especially that kind of that, um, that category of kind of the suburban voter and especially, and then the other side of that is to not target non-voters. So this goes to, or, or which, which is the Jackson coalition essentially. So the, the solution is not to try to win over and kind of galvanize grassroots support from people of color, from um, from other kinds of um, marginalized groups um, who don't traditionally vote in elections, but how to win is to you go after these other voters. And this becomes like critical to the kind of strategy of the DLC, but I would actually say the, Dem- the mainstream Democratic Party going forward. Right. That is so key to highlight given today's commonplace hand-wringing over losing voters to Republicans or apathy you know, it's like, why did this happen? Well, your book goes a long way to explaining why working class people didn't just leave the party. They were really actively pushed out. And it's clear that this 
suicidal philosophy guided Democrats at least all the way through 2016 when Schumer, Chuck Schumer infamously said, quote, for every blue collar Democrat we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Why did these new Democrats want a new base so badly? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think they saw it as stability um, and that this is always the thing. I mean, this and this is guiding Schumer's thinking, too, um, is that these are much this is a much more sort of stable category. It also is people I mean, it aligns with their own kind of ideological agenda. And so this is the point that like elections are also who wins gets to shape policy. And so you're shaping policy for your particular constituencies, constituencies. And I think if you go that you're not you don't believe in kind of shoring up organized labor more broadly, then that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of voter in which you you would go, um, you would go out. Um, I don't think that they're, I mean, this is not to say that they're like, and I think that the, the, the questions around sort of race and other marginalized groups, they're not hostile, they're not like overtly racist. It's not the kind of agenda such that to kind of fulfill, like to fill the expectations that if you're sort of trying to win over Jesse Jackson's base, like the kinds of things that Jesse Jackson was promising that he was going to do, kind of broad scale actually redistributing and universalist programs that he was offering, like that's not what they were in, and that was not part of what they were they were going. I think another way that this really, I mean, I would say this, I think the other way that it really hurt the Democratic Party, um, so you lose this, you alienate large-scale groups of people and also sort of creates this kind of real tunnel vision. But the other way is to focus on the president, the presidency as the way to kind of gain stability, because I think that that's actually tremendously hurt the Democratic Party. Yeah. Look at all those state le- state legislative seats that disappeared under Obama that we've the Democratic Party's never won back. Totally. And like, I think it's local elections. I mean, I think this is like not to say that I think that the I'm I don't want to like tout the Republicans and various different things. But I think they figured this out um, in a way that was like you you deep in the base. But even like there's no I mean, the, there's just no the the it's one of the things about like trying to come up with like at like the level of Congress, there was no investment in that by the Democratic Party for many years. And I think that's actually also been a really, really hindering focus and then also created some of this kind of homogeneity in various different ways. So some of this ideas of like how this has worked, it's actually like affected things at a, at a broad scale level um, and 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 continues to create all kinds of cascading consequences. And I think this, I think state legislatures are like critical. So me too. You said that the DLC wasn't explicitly overtly hostile to older constituencies like black Democrats, but they got pretty close to being to making pretty overt racist appeals. The DLC really specifically and explicitly, for example, snubbed and even attempted to humiliate Jackson, really kind of drawing him out as a foil, you write, as part of their, quote, laser focus on winning the presidency by appealing to white moderates and working class swing voters who had defected to the Republicans in the previous election cycles. And the really infamous example here is Clinton's address to the Rainbow Coalition Convention in 1992, when he launches this attack on the rapper Sister Solja in what was clearly an effort to distance himself from progressive black leadership and also to stigmatize that leadership, or at least to demonstrate who was calling the shots in the relationship. I know she is a young person, but she has a big influence on a lot of people. And when people say that, if you took the words white and black and you reversed them, you might think David Duke was giving that speech. Let me tell you, we all make mistakes and sometimes we're not as sensitive as we ought to be. And we have an obligation, all of us, to call attention to prejudice wherever we see it. A few months ago, I made a mistake. 
I joined a friend of mine and I played golf at a country club that didn't have any African-American members. I was criticized for doing it. You know what? I was rightly criticized for doing it. I made a mistake. And I said I would never do that again. And I think all of us have got to be sensitive to that. We can't get anywhere in this country pointing the finger at one another across racial lines. If we do that, we're dead, and they will beat us. Even in Reverend Jackson's new math of this election. And the DLC was not subtle, calling, they called for, quote, preventing crime and punishing criminals, not explaining away their behavior, and for, quote, equal opportunity, not equal outcomes, a reference to affirmative action. We often think of neoliberalism primarily in economic terms, but what does it reveal that for new Democrats, a politics advancing free trade, deregulation, and non-union high-tech work, that that was accompanied by these reactionary appeals and policies on criminal justice, immigration, affirmative action, and the explicit promotion of the heteronormative nuclear family, all alongside these really brazen confrontations with black leaders, particularly Jesse Jackson. Yeah. And so, I mean, I I think there's a, a number of different things going on. I mean, the one component of this is like there is this kind of, um, and many people have looked at this around kind of neoliberalism in various different ways, but I think especially it's a, it's sort of emphasis on individualism and sort of individual rational behavior. It demands particular kinds of behavioral responses. And I think that actually is really critical to the ways in which the New Democrats, especially under Clinton. And Clinton has his own like long trajectory, which my book looks at, and I'm happy to talk about, about his relationship to people of color and to um, pe- to poor people um, and how what he understands as the kind of right solution. And actually what I argue is that he brings a lot of that, that to the DLC and to the New Democrats when he becomes their, their leader and then also um, and then becomes the presidential nomination and effectively as like a DLC candidate. Yeah, welfare reform you write is basically a thing he brought to the DLC's table. Yeah, I mean... He, Totally. He was really, I mean, they were, they were sort of poking around at welfare, but he's really, welfare was his, was his, um, a lot of education issues. Those were his things that he sort of brought in. And, and, and what I look at extensively in the book is his, his focus on, um, on microfinance and community development banking, where these sort of Clinton, were, were Clinton's programs that he sort of invest, invested in. And a lot of the ways that I think those operate is about kind of designing, and, and this goes to the kind of punitive, punitive criminal justice programs and various different other things is kind of redefining the line between like who's a good poor person of color and who's a bad poor person of color. Um, And so we often see this around the kind of welfare queen rhetoric. And in many ways, like what I see in the book that Clinton and the Democrats did is kind of just move the line. So it's sort of saying that like there's a particular kind of poor person of color who we will celebrate and kind of advocate for, who's someone who can like operate within the structures of market capitalism um, and who who like Clinton, as he talked about at various different points, like played by will play by the rules. Um, So like that's like if you're not breaking the rules and you're doing all these kinds of things like you want you also want to be like kind of tech like a uh, like future tech worker as I look in the book like an entrepreneur those that is that is celebrated but the other side of that like then then if you're not that person here is the kind of punitive dimensions to this and I think that that actually does map in various different ways to if you think about this as neoliberalism but but to the kind of the kind of economic agenda that um that the Clinton that the new Democrats and the Clinton administration come to advocate for. So it works within this kind of new, the, what, what they call the new economy. Um, and it's very much in line with that kind of thinking. I mean, and, and this is another thing, like, and this is a fight, like, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too much, but like, 
a lot of people say, like, there's the question around Clinton, what happens after 1984 once Clinton is office? And this goes, I'm just jumping to welfare reform for a second, like, to your example. But it goes to Clinton bringing this to the Democrat, to the new, to the um, new Democrats, like, there's this idea that like that was only an after the reaction to the Republicans. So this actually is to my original, the original point about what the book is trying to do. Right. That it was a reaction to the, the Gingrich Republican revolution of 94 and the, and Clinton tacking right in response. But in fact, he'd been a big advocate of welfare reform and welfare to work from his time as governor in Arkansas. Yes. And that's like, that's the thing. And so when you ask the question about sort of like what's missed when you only focus on telling the story in terms of the, the right, like that, that's what it is. Like it's like, like this is something that Clinton long advocated for. And I totally, I think that like the, I think that the 96 law would not have been as punitive. At, like I think if Clinton had had his way, but it's like, um, you know, I think that they would not have had, like there's some, if you actually look at the 1996 welfare reform law, it's, it's like, it's extraordinarily draconian and like shocking to me, even as someone who's like studied this for a long time. I think some of that did come, I do think a lot of that did come from the Republicans, like having like, I mean, the fact that you, even if authorized immigrants couldn't receive wealth, wouldn't receive welfare. The one, I mean, I don't think they would have had the marriage training components of it or like, or um, as, if had it not been for like certain socially conservative Republicans getting their like add on. This really is an example in a sense, like the, 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 the exact way that welfare played out of the role played by triangulation and reaction to Republicans, because it was really, you write the uh, influence of Machiavellian political strategist Dick Morris who was looking for, quote, insurance for Clinton's reelection campaign against Bob Dole. I mean, even you write Robert Rubin, the Wall Street Drive Treasury secretary, who was typically on the right of the administration, even he opposed uh, Gingrich's welfare bill. Yes, but the point, yeah, and and that's what, like, I mean, and so that this is that this is the, this is the sort of example of this happening. But I think this goes to like the other part of this is that Clinton was a long advocate of welfare reform, so it is not right. like he was forced into like the welfare, like the, like the the core ideas of welfare reform were things that Clinton believed in, and the ideas of welfare to work, and like he wanted to have more more social services than than the final the final bill suggested. That's what he ran on, but like this is really critical to his entire kind of persona and worldview and what he runs on as you know this is his the this is like a core component of the 1992 election and campaign that he ran on was ending welfare as we know it um and i that's what i think gets lost and so that's actually really like sort of fundamental to the vision and there there was a fit like the intent i do think the intent was in some ways different than Reagan and the Republicans. Um, and so you don't have the same kind of like vituperative, like, like, but actually a lot of the ways that there was all these targeting of poor people of color in different ways too. But that, that to me is like kind of really, really central to sort of understanding what the kind of vision was that they, that they were there. And to the sister soldier, like the, to the, that you had asked about. So, I mean, there's, a variety of different things on on crime that are really important um, and how kind of crime gets crime gets appropriated. But I think that, that that particular moment, that was this clear dog whistle moment to all of those white moderates to say, like, I'm not going to be beholden to special interests. Um, and like, I like I am not going to be this is where I am a new kind of Democrat who's not going to come in and kind of kowtow to the civil rights movement or to people like Jesse Jackson. So it was this way of kind of asserting this particular sort of stance. And I I make the argument, like, it's really interesting because in the book, like, what I look at a lot is these kind of economic development programs. And so the Sister Social Moment came right after, right after the um, LA, the 1992 LA uprising. Like, I think we often, like, 
just thinking about like kind of chronology that was really interesting to me. And like half the speech was actually about that. Um, and all these programs that Clinton was going to come in, was going to kind of come bring in to, um, to places like South LA to kind of do economic redevelopment. And these are like the programs that I look at. They're all these like market oriented ideas. Like we're going to kind of help, help people start businesses. We're going to bring banks and micro, micro, microfinance into places like South LA. I argue that like, and like, that those also were like kind of ways of appealing to white moderate white like suburban voters because I just don't think like that was a that all of those which would be like the, the, the kind of kinder version of the sister soldier moment that they, that there was any kind of idea that like that actually like to that would be appealing to black voters um so I think it's part of a kind of similar kind of effort to kind of appeal to a particular kind of voter the interesting thing about this, and this goes to like a bigger thing that I looked at in the book that I like, I'm really fascinated in and happy to talk about it at various different lengths, is the fact that like many of the um, uh, many black political leaders like still decided to endorse Clinton in 1992. Um, Jackson didn't in 90. He I can't did he he grudgingly did I think at the in the end, but like you have people like John Lewis who basically like believe that he's all, are, are horrified by these statements, but basically say like this is better, um and this is going to be better for my constituents um than having another um, another Republican term. So you have a lot of people who are kind of like making peace with this from basically from the outset of the Clinton administration. And by the end of his life, someone like John Lewis seems pretty content with the direction that Bill Clinton took the Democratic Party, to be honest. Yeah, I think that that like is okay. I mean, I think, yeah. And so that's some of it too. Like you have, I mean, there are a variety of people who are sort of come along on this. And I think that's a sort of other piece of when we tell the story is also really important, as is Jackson. So, <laughs> I want to talk about the New Democrats' in intellectual influences. You, you refer to MIT economist Lester Thoreau, and then also Harvard economist Robert Reich. And the latter is somewhat strange to see, given that he has long since been a dissenter from the, the liberal left against Clintonism. What did Thoreau and Reich think was happening to the American economy? And how did they think that American government and the Democratic Party needed to respond? Yeah, so one actually one caveat, which is really interesting of a lot of the people, is that um, Reich was not actually an economist. Um, he was a lot like a um, oh. he was a lawyer and law professor. Like um, interesting, but then and then worked at the um, school of, Kennedy School of Government, which actually says something interesting about a lot of the people who come into the um, Clinton administration um, were not trained economists. So Robert Rubin, who is Secretary of becomes Secretary of Treasury, is also not a. I mean, it has a degree in e- economics, but is not a PhD in economics. There's a, the book um, Stephanie Mudge's Stephanie book, Mudge. Yes, goes into this, and I, I actually think it's really critical. Like so, like Dean Sperling, like all of these people. Um, and there is a dig interview with Stephanie Mudge in the archives. Oh, there is. Oh, good. I, I need to listen to it. She's wonderful. And was, um, I think her work is really, is incredible, uh, uh, is so incredible on this, on these questions. Um, but Reich, who, um, so he was at the Kennedy School in the late 1970s and wrote this series of books. So he became really interested along with um, the other person is Ira Magaziner, um, who gets known more as the kind of person for from for healthcare. And whose son is currently the treasurer of Rhode Island running for the U.S. House of Representatives in Rhode oh, Island's inter- second oh, okay. district. <laughs> Um, he's, Magaziner is huge in Rhode Island. I mean, it's like a, it's a, a number of different ways. I like, I once wrote a, uh, like a long paper on what should be an article on him. Um, because he also for, from where you're sitting, um, was the person who, um, who did the open curriculum. 
Yes, um, the new curriculum at Brown. So he like has this particular place at Brown, which I actually like as a side note, and I don't know how many Diglisons are, are Brown alums. You can cut this if you don't need this part, like for your small Brown. So like I went to Brown and I thought about this a lot. And I then wrote in the paper, I was like, it's when you go to Brown, you're like, this is so amazing. It's so open, but it's completely market oriented. in the fact that you're like, I have, I had like actually writing this paper had gave me like a new lease on the Brown open curriculum. And the fact that it's actually is in so many ways, like a market, a market approach. It's totally consumerist um, in various different ways. And then, then he brought that to like various different other things, including the fact that he's who is the architect of the Clinton healthcare um, program, which also has a very similar, like complex way of thinking of those things. So for all of you, you can bring that up to all your Brown professor. We are keeping this in because I am passionate about Brown's open curriculum being a thoroughly neoliberal project celebrated as progressive liberation for Brown students who are, in fact, the entitled consumers who have no particular requirements of what they're supposed to take take two weeks at the beginning of each semester, I believe, to shop in different classes it's where they can just shopping. <laughs> yeah, where they can just walk in and out. It is an absurdity. <laughs> Thank you for so this also goes to your um this also goes no I, I did. I had a I had a break point working on this and I was like all of my thinking that this was so progressive um and also puts a huge burden on professors. I'm sure puts a huge burden on professors as they have to like they have to like perform for their students to take the classes. Cater to the whims um, of their customers, i.e. their students. Yeah. Um, but I think it's actually really interesting to your question of like the other piece of this. You asked that that question of the McGovern campaign to the new like the new Democrats is also this re- interesting place where like the the left and the right are meeting um, in the seven like the nineteen seventies and in eighties that actually produce these kinds of politics. And so in many ways, it's like they're both kind of opposed to kind of big government or big like big bureaucracy, which is also kind of what the idea of the open curriculum, if that's a good thing. And I should not. I think that is like probably like one of the more minimal legacies of the um the new left but that is that is seen as part of it right was interesting and so they both actually so then magaziner um becomes a management consultant um he worked for boston consulting group and he was actually consulting on a a lot of projects in sweden and japan and became really interested in ideas of industrial policy um and the ways that that countries like like japan and um and sweden were adopting these kinds of policies and um, Wright also becomes interested in that idea as a as a kind of someone who's interested in the economy as a kind of policy person. They but then sort of they they take away the kind of idea of industrial policy being about kind of um, shoring up manufacturing industries, and instead it should be about high tech growth. And so there's a real they sort of really believe, and this goes to where Thoreau fits into, who also was a kind of key figure in the um, McGovern campaign on like some of McGovern's more progressive um, economic policies. So I've made many people angry by sort of putting these people in this category, but they do become really interested in the ideas of what become globalization. And essentially their argument is that globalization is inevitable. Um, and that what we need kind of need to do is focus on like what Thoreau calls like um, sunrise as opposed to sunset industry. So anything in like car manufacturing, like in um, like steel, electronics, those are all like sunset industries. And those can all be sent that those can be sent for like cheap labor abroad. But what the U.S. really needs to focus on is investing. And that goes to industrial policy in things like um, in high tech growth um, and post-industrial growth. And those are kind of grow the economy. So this is Wright thinks about this in terms of like more knowledge, knowledge intensive work. And he at various different points kind of uses the in, in his his all of books on these kinds of topics um, over the course of the 1970s and 80s sort of advocates these policies. And they become like the kind of key thinkers and um, key sort of influential thinkers 
of people, of the kind of Atari Democrats and are sort of promoting or sort of advocate or sort of at the heart of their kind of economic and policy ideas. Reich is interesting because, I mean, the other side of this is for like the personal dimensions of it is um, he and Magaziner and Clinton were all Rhodes Scholars together. So they have this like longstanding relationship. But like they all stay in touch during the Clinton, like the Clinton years and or Clinton, early Clinton when Clinton is governor of Arkansas. And Bill Clinton becomes really interested in this because he becomes, he's governor twice of Arkansas. So he is governor in 1970, wins governor in 1978, loses in 1980 and then becomes re, um, reelected. But he really believes that like Arkansas, which was a state that was bleeding out its manufacturing, um, it's basically its industry, um, except for Walmart and um, Purdue Chicken, um, which state which stayed. But um, all of their jobs had been um, were companies were were closing up their factories and in Arkansas, which were mostly um, garment industry and um, like things like Reynolds tinfoil factories and moving those to um, to Asia. And they needed something for economic development, and they become Clinton becomes convinced that kind of post-industrial bringing in sort of post-industrial and creating like a Silicon Valley type model in Arkansas is the kind of solution. And I actually see this as like the foundations of this kind of relentless focus the Democratic Party, which it still focuses on, on like worker retraining. So that's actually also right. Like the solution to this is like you right turn the laid off miners into coders. Yes, exactly. So this is like this is and there's early versions of this. So there's constant celebration of worker retraining as a solution to all problems or educate like and then the solution is just like educating people. So you then put the money into education. So Bill Clinton becomes a strong advocate of this. And Robert Reich is really big on this that you sort of do you do education. The other piece which he then becomes really interested in. So he keeps his keeps this focus on sort of globalization as inevitable, but then also becomes um, more interested in the kind of infrastructure redevelopment. And so he's actually really important to Clinton's 1992 campaign, which did have this kind of strong emphasis on infrastructure invest, like investing in infrastructure as the kind of other component of this. And Clinton, like once then Clinton appoints him as secretary of labor, and then he scraps the infrastructure part of it. Yeah. It, which, it, which is a fascinating conflict that you elucidate in your book. I think that Reich's proposal for infrastructure investment puts him into conflict with Goldman Sachs executive and Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, who wanted deficit reduction. And initially, you write, quote, Clinton was dubious of arranging his economic agenda around the desires of bond traders. And yet he did. And Rubin won out and Reich didn't get his stimulus or infrastructure spending. What what does that conflict between increased government investment on the one hand and deficit reduction on the other, both in their own ways, key new Democrat positions what does that reveal about New Democrat politics? And and more particularly, what does it reveal that when the theoretical rubber hit the road of governance, that this more interventionist line of New Democratic policy advocated by Reich got sidelined by Wall Street interests? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's it is revealing of the priorities and the sense of like sort of what aspects of the economy you you grow. And there's really interesting work. I mean, from a number of people, um, I have a, a friend, David Stein, who I'll give a shout out to, is working on this question of deficit, like the kinds of the questions around the deficit and how this idea of like the fictions around deficit becomes so critical to how we understand what the Democrats kind of understand. So that becomes a really critical piece of it, this fear of um, of ballooning deficit spending. And so that that's what what Rubin is talking about, but also this this question around investment and also this idea of like what the, the, the responsiveness of the markets. So this idea, I mean, that's really that's Rubin's idea that like you need to have less of a deficit because that's scaring bond traders and we need to have their investment money. And I think there's some of this idea is like you can then do all the kind of stimulus and investment stuff later. Like once we have the growth in place, we can do all this other stuff. And so growth is the kind of most central idea. I think that is a critical component of the, of, of the thinking. 
to some ways, I mean, the ideas of infrastructure spending is also is also about investment is about economic growth too. There's a way of thinking about that of the way that this will help sort of stimulate the economy, but it's a very different way of going about doing it. So I think this does set up the um, the ways in which the w- this this choice that is made really early on in the Clinton presidency sets a, a whole set of trajectories that go on. And I think that's another key piece. I mean, there's this promotion of them like. One of the things I look at in the book and I found really fascinating to think about is like there's all these ways that like the Clinton administration and the Democrats are advocating like sort of turning to the market to do good and to help poor people. Um, You know, if you have economic growth, that will help poor people or we kind of can turn to market tools. But one of the key things that happens over the course of the 1990s is like all of these, especially under Rubin um, and Summers and the other kind of key people who are in um, who are setting come to set Clinton's economic um, agenda is like a real remaking of the um, the basic economic infrastructure of the United, like uh, an economic policy. I mean, so that's where you get really important deregulation. I was really, I mean, that was another thing I was like learned from working on this book, which you kind of I kind of understood before. But like how much the banking industry changes from the beginning of the 1990s to the end of the 1990s, and so we sort of hear about that, but like it's actually seeing it play out is like very powerful. I mean, so this, these are industries that are rapidly changing. For example, this purportedly somewhat like progressive reauthorization or reform of the Community Reinvestment Act is is tied up with Glass-Steagall, the infamous banking deregulation bill that paved the way for the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, that's I mean, there's ways that that happens and it doesn't actually do. I mean, so having reinvest the Community Reinvestment Act works in various ways. They're also trying to make it more efficient. Like that's a whole thing of making it work in various different ways and having it do work that was not necessarily what its architects initially intended for it to do. I mean, but there's the various different ways of like many states, you know, didn't have like you couldn't do interstate banking in a lot of states like and that that changes that you have these and you enables different kinds of new collaborations to come in. So these various different ways to like change to make the economy and that's and that's connected to these other kinds of ways of building growth and that are connected to efficiency, but have like a real have a really critical impact in kind of very the ways various different things. I think te- the telecommunications is another one that there was just like vast deregulation of telecommunications. Nineteen ninety six. Yeah, and so I mean these are things that are like actually fundamentally changing the mechanisms and institutions of the um, of the economy, and then you're asking you're turning that make them a lot more. Um, in my ways, unstable. And so then you're at, you're turning to those those like very sort of mechanisms of instability and asking and saying that that's what's going to solve the problems of poverty and inequality. Um, and so it, it creates a very, a very, very volatile situation, I think, um, although that's not really seen at the end of the Clinton presidency. And this might be jumping ahead, but like can, it's like sort of where it, it becomes like almost um, a slow moving train that 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 comes comes into that crashes in a decade later with the financial crisis. Yeah, the New Democrats have this whole future-oriented politics, which we've talked about. And that's this kind of future orientation allows Clinton and the Democrats to frame poor people as these historical anomalies, market failures to be corrected through market inclusion, obscuring the reality that they are victims of that very same market, which then facilitates this process of what Kianga Yamada-Taylor calls predatory inclusion, all while foreclosing structural critiques and challenges to that very same system. You write, quote, the New Democrats treated poverty and other forms of discrimination largely as a market failure. In response, its adherents looked for ways to both bring the market to poor people of color and to integrate them into the capitalist system. Clinton and his allies extended the values of what historians call racial liberalism, the argument that for marginalized groups, especially African-Americans, inclusion in American society and the legal system provided the best means for creating racial equality. 
just for some context, what is racial liberalism? And then how did racial liberalism and this neoliberal turn in liberal politics shape one another, not only in the 90s, but also really through today when we see constant dominant liberal accounts of racism that are so thoroughly dematerialized? Yeah, that's like, I think it's a critical point. So racial liberalism as a concept, um, I mean, I, I, it's not often like deemed that. It's something that like sort of scholars scholars call it that, um, but is the idea that- It's a little derogatory. What? It's a derogatory. <laughs> it's a little- But I mean, it's, it's really in many ways like sort of, it, it can also, there are a couple of different ways. Like, well, in some ways it's like, it's it's a version of color of colorblind liberalism um, in some capacity that this kind of idea that um, of a focus on kind of especially the kind of, and it, it, it goes back to kind of the ideas of Gunnar Myrdal, but that like racism itself is a kind of um, about kind of inherent flaws in people um, and, and in many ways not about structures. And the way that you solve problems of race is through, as you as you brought up um, and as I quoting the book, um, is about integrating people into the legal system. And so this is the kind of core agenda of the mainstream civil rights movement and the mainstream civil rights ad- uh, legislation about those kind of ideas that like racism will be solved when you incorporate people um, into these kinds of mecha- into these various different mechanisms. And so one of the things interesting, I mean, when you look at the kind of new Democrat moment or this kind of post, which is really, when you say post 60s, that's also kind of this idea of what's often called the post civil rights moment, that kind of the big civil rights legislation had already been passed. Um, um, and so there's looking to other kinds of mechanisms. So why? That's a question like why? There was often this idea of like, why is racial inequality still existing? And so for the Clinton New Democrat version is that the solution lies in the um, integrating people into the market. So that's both about that can solve the problems of racial inequality, but that can also solve the um, that can also address the kinds of various different like persistent problems of poverty. And I the part of it that's it's these are very I mean, racial liberalism as a concept and is um, very much individualized. It's about in, it's about individual solutions, not structural solutions. So that's the kind of core when we think about, when historians think about racial liberalism, that's like one of the core things they think about. And this is the same idea, as you said, like it's, in some ways it's actually, I mean, the fascinating thing about the market is in some ways it's more materialist than the kind of traditional like civil rights version, because it is like looking to a kind of market solution, but in a way that's not actually addressing structural, in, like structural inequities. So you're, I bring up in the book, like one of my problems about this is that like, Capitalism itself, as a as a tool, is something that cre- is an inherently zero sum and inherently creates um, inequities within it. So you're trying to solve equality through a system itself that's inherently that it, that has inherent inequities within it, and that to me is like a critical critical problem with the kinds of um, this this approach to sort of thinking about these questions. Yeah, it's also materialist, even if in a, a twisted way, in this in the sense that New Democrats framed poverty as solvable by transforming poor people into these new entrepreneurial subjects. And this is just all over your book and the story you tell from microenterprise and micro credit programs to, of course, welfare reform and also public housing. But in the case of which we'll talk about more later, but in the case of welfare reform, Clinton has this line in your book uh, from 1999, quote, what does it mean to a single mom's life when she goes to the mailbox in the morning and sees a bank statement instead of a welfare check? What does it mean to a child when he or she can go to school and say, when they ask, what does your mother do for a living? She owns a beauty shop. It is, there is this like materialist undercurrent, not only in terms of what creates racism, but what creates the racialized subjects that almost, from the New Democrat perspective, reasonably elicit racist responses from white people. Yeah, and so I mean, these are this idea of like these like sort of worthy poor 
people of color and like celebrating that, like that kind of on like this sort of entrepreneurial poor and like that as a person that is like worthy of respect. I think there's a really interesting component to this too. And this goes to like at the heart of that, um, that question, which also goes to the kind of your question about their intellect, the intellectual side of this. There's a very easy way to read that and be like, that is so disingenuous <laughs> or like just that Clinton <laughs> said that, like what, like, I, I mean, and I, um, many times like reading some of those, like, and I, and like the particular kinds of ways it's like this relentless, I mean, it's also two things. Like I have many thoughts about the ways that that, that those kinds of things go in. What I want to say in like the one side of it is like, what I came away from doing this is like Clinton genuinely believed in this. Like, and so that's totally. the part that I think I it's very it. easy to be like, oh, to just dismiss this as like uh, for a number of different things. But I think he really believed in that idea in a couple of different ways. One is that like really believed in market oriented solutions as, as the, as the way to go, but also had this particular vision of like what um, it meant to like the psychological components of that. And Jason DePaul, I took this, I, I built on this from Jason DePaul's, great book on welfare American dream about welfare reform. But that was his point that like Clinton going back to his own, like you can psychoanalyze him, but going back to his own childhood believed in this, uh, th- that part of it, the, the, uh, the piece to me, the man from hope, and the man from hope. Exactly. Um, so the piece for me was more about the ways in which these programs like, and so this goes to like the kind of uh, the component of like liberalism that actually like charted my first book, which is like, there's like a deeply meritocratic view of this, of that, of that story that you just told, um, which is that like, they only really focus on success stories. And so it's like they, and this is, this becomes kind of all through. It's not just, it's not just like, it's both Clintons actually. Hillary Clinton does a lot of this too, but then I think politicians and like many politicians do this constantly celebrating these success stories of individuals and like telling their narrative. And like, I mean, now we see this a lot of like the state of the union is like, just, I feel like has now become this like, just like cascade of these stories. But the, what I think is really important about that is that like, it implicitly then like stigmatizes people who can't make it like the woman who starts the beauty parlor and fails and doesn't actually address like the structural realities of like what makes it extraordinarily difficult to start your own business. Um, if you are a poor woman of color in, um, in the South side of Chicago or in like rural Arkansas. And those are just two examples of what happens. So well, the Arkansas woman who Clinton had introduced him at the signing ceremony for welfare reform ends up in serious financial hardship really not long thereafter. Absolutely. And so that, I mean, the story, so that's the woman, if you look at the picture, and I talk about this in the book, like Lily Mae Harden, who's next to him in the famous pictures of him signing welfare reform. Um, and he brought her, he'd been telling her story since the 80s um, about like why she was this this figure. And she worked at a, um, when she worked at the um, a supermarket um, and like that it was like for her son, this was really important. Like she fell into hard times also because of welfare reform. She was not eligible for any more welfare assistance and then goes into like goes into substantial debt. And that's like a, I think that's a common story for people. Getting shunted off government assistance and into this low wage service economy where union power was in terminal decline, that that was, you know, often pretty bad for women. <laughs> the other, exactly. And the other thing, I mean, and and without any child, like without adding like sub- substantial childcare support around it too. And I mean, the one of the things like I, I looked at the Clinton program, Clinton brings um, the founder of Grameen, um, Grameen Bank, Mohammed Yunus, to Arkansas through this kind of complicated set of circumstances that I look at in the book um, in the 80s to start a microfinance program in um, the Arkansas Delta. And like one of the things that they, there's this idea that this is going to work for people who've lost their jobs to help them get off welfare. But one of the things that I think is really important and, and where that program fell short is like a, a lack of recognition that it's like very, very difficult to start your own company and that many people don't like there's this whole idea of kind of celebrating entrepreneurship and its various different components 
that becomes so central to the kind of ethos of the 1990s and then beyond and beyond, like very much beyond. I mean, I think one of the things that I should say is I started on Musk crypto. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah, it, it, it everything. is really, I should say that, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I, what I was going to say is like, I started this book in 2014 and like very much influenced by the Obama years, which were so rife with all this sort of discussion of entrepreneurship. And I've been thinking about how that's like, actually, um, that's actually kind of dissipated, but the Elon Musk example is a critical one of like how it's kind of remorphed in different ways around different people. So we're no longer celebrating like we don't celebrate like Mark Zuckerberg anymore as culturally, but like, Elon Musk holds this crazy power um, that is like that has been so that is venerated in kind of a slightly different way. Um, and crypto, crypto too. That yeah, and like the, and a similar idea, like you can sort of use this in various different ways. It's just it's like you know it's it's um, disruptive and it gives you a certain kind of flexibility um, that um, that I think is part of those those questions those issues. But I mean, so what happened is like a lot of the women who like it turned out that many people like what they want is stability and they want a wage like a waged job and a good wage job. And so that's like what's missing. I think the other piece of welfare reform, which is like so important to remember, and like they I mean, a few people brought this up at the time, but is became so evident is like they started the, the welfare reform launched in or like when it was like first when it was like the late 1990s when the economy was really good um and even then i mean it was low people were going into like service oriented work so it was like working at i mean i like working at mcdonald's is really difficult work and not particularly well waged but those jobs were like even available i mean one of the things was like then those jobs just just, like they, they weren't always even available and became increasingly more unstable as we have seen in the various different ways that what happens to service work in the 2000s. So it's like turning people into a, into to a, a both like into a system that's like just profoundly unstable and profoundly um, in a system, in a sort of conditioned into a system of poverty. Especially with the rise of new scheduling technology. Yeah, that's what I was, I was, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I mean, so it's like, that's the ones that, how that, how that came to operate. And I think the other thing, and this goes to your the original question you asked, is the fact that this then gets told as a story about like people who don't succeed. That it's like it's the, it's on their individual failure as opposed to the the ways in which it might be a larger flaw within the the market economy and the new economy that was being produced. So all of these new kinds of mechanisms that are coming into play. And I that's actually where the title of the book comes from of Left Behind, which was that this was this idea that Clinton used constantly, like the Clintons and New Democrats used of like that they were wanted to help those people who were left behind by the new economy um, and the places that were left behind. And that sort of suggests that like that's not those are the anomaly and not like actually like the canaries in the coal mine saying that there's something wrong um, and that like a, a true new economy or economic system that work would not leave places behind, but would, would would like fundamentally address their problems. And so the solution to those places becomes like bringing in, you know, new corporate money, which also has its own severe limitations to it. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else by Olufemi Taiwo. Identity politics is everywhere, polarizing discourse from the campaign trail to the classroom and amplifying antagonisms in the media, both online and off. But the trouble, Olufemi Taiwo deftly argues, is not with identity politics itself. 
through a substantive engagement with the global Black radical tradition and a critical understanding of racial capitalism, Taiwo identifies the process by which a radical concept can be stripped of its political substance and liberatory potential by becoming the victim of elite capture, deployed by political, social, and economic elites in the service of their own interests. By rejecting elitist identity politics in favor of a constructive politics of radical solidarity, he advances the possibility of organizing across our differences in the urgent struggle for a better world. Robin D.G. Kelly makes it clear, Olufemi Taiwo is a thinker on fire. Find Elite Capture at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20, respectively. Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, by Olufemi Taiwo. Out now from Haymarket Books. In his 1999 State of the Union address, Clinton said, quote, Our greatest untapped markets are not overseas. They are right here at home, and we should go after them by building a bridge from Wall Street to Appalachia to the Mississippi Delta to our Native American communities. A few years prior, soon after the passage of NAFTA, quote, if we simply can apply our international economic policy to South Central Los Angeles, Harlem, Milwaukee, Detroit, you name it, the Mississippi Delta, South Texas, we're going to do just fine in this country. How did Clinton's global vision of this liberal order where the U.S. was spreading free trade and democracy across the globe, how did that relate to his politics of poverty alleviation through market inclusion at home? Well, I think they, they, that's a great question and something that I'm really interested in sort of thinking about because I think it often gets treated separately. I think they were absolutely sort of intertwined. Um, and so this idea of kind of, um, I mean, so central to the sort of globalization moment. And it's really fascinating. I actually just taught, a, just finished teaching a class on um, Cold War America. And we were talking about the kind of 90s and globalization and sort of what it sort of stands for in a foreign policy com- dimension is really central to this. Um, but that the solution, you know, the, in the, in the, in many ways, it's this kind of, it's the kind of end of history post sort of triumphalist liberal democracy is winning, but that sort of, this is going to be good for everybody. And we can kind of bring through markets and we can bring democracy throughout and spread democracy throughout the world. And I think there's this sharing and fusion of various different techniques. So there's often this language of like, these things are working hand in hand and we can kind of share we can share the solutions that are working in one place to another. So that goes to the microfinance dimension of this, of like taking techniques that were, you know, work that it's questionable how well they were working in Bangladesh, but bringing those, bringing those to the U.S. and vice versa, that sort of things get this kind of this idea of kind of the Clinton language of kind of building bridges, tearing down walls, all of that stuff is sort of, I think, is a really sort of central component of this. But also in the ways that like it, globalization itself was creating like mass instability in many people's, um, many people, you know, is it, was it was actually like a contributing factor in the questions of poverty, both in the United States and in the developing, in the global South too. So that goes to it too. So that's a kind of vague answer to the question, but I think that that's how I see it is like they're at, they become like absolutely fundamentally intertwined. It, it's what's fascinating to me, actually, I would say this is like the language of sort of saying that like, we're gonna, we need to go find these untapped markets is actually like a long standing language, language that, that particularly liberals have used to talk about parts of, um, of rural areas that it's like another country. 
And I think there's that level of it. But the other piece I see is this idea that like the solutions that can work one place can work somewhere else. Um, Which really comes out in the micro lending and micro enterprise part of the the story you tell. Yeah. And that um, that part like that to me is this idea that you can take a something that's working that's that's purportedly working one place and just apply it some wholesale somewhere else. And I think that also goes to like the notion of like global, like spreading globalization that like just democracy, like if you have a market, just democracy itself will like sprout. Um, and that's really what they, I and mean, that's some of what the thinking w- that was going on in the nineties was too. So that's, I think those are some of the places that I see them like as, as like sort of fused in a, in a variety of different ways. Yeah. I mean, Clinton as governor of Arkansas really wanted to bring the Grameen Bank to Arkansas to turn poor people into Arkansas into successful entrepreneurs and saw, solve the problem of poverty in Arkansas that way. But I mean, the Grameen Bank didn't solve poverty in Bangladesh. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think in, these are these things that like there was there's lots of ways that it was it was there's lots there's many debates on the sort of success of microfinance in um, in the global south. But I think it was like it's not it didn't solve it didn't solve at the macro level the problems, um, the problems of poverty. And I think there's this this but it didn't question. even solve the micro it didn't even solve the micro, micro problems, problems in Arkansas. Poverty. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that, like they don't um, even so, have like success stories in Arkansas, really, where at least there are individual success stories in Bangladesh. Yes, exactly. Um, and so that like that's some of that that component that you can sort of apply this idea to another place, which I think becomes part of this kind of bigger vision of globalization is what another place that I see this is really sort of the fusion really clearly. Hillary Clinton was particularly enamored with microcredit and microenterprise as a tool for women's empowerment. What does this story you tell reveal about this new Democrat brand of feminism focused so much on individual women's economic advancement? A brand of feminism, of course, that's very still palpably here today. Absolutely. I mean, so this Hillary Clinton promotes microfinance. So she ta- after the after the healthcare debacle um, of the of the early nineties, um, she embraces microfinance. I actually was surprised at this. She like it's it she says it in like every speech she gives and she becomes like even a bigger proponent of it than Bill Clinton. And I think really sees it as like her platform. But it's 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 absolutely in line with the kind of her particular vision and version of feminism and what feminism can offer, which is this notion of like empowerment choice, but largely like largely regulated through markets. And also this kind of this I would say somewhat paternalistic way of treating poor women in the global South and kind of, and like their, that like this effort of needing to kind of save and promote and to save them. And that is actually becomes really central to her time as first lady. So that like that kind of, that version of kind of saving the, um, saving women throughout the world and sort of giving them rights and freedoms, but not actually um, sort of fundamental economic tools is a really, um, is really central to kind of the the story here. And I think you see that sort of really coming, coming out in the 90s. Why was the left so marginal in the 90s? And more specifically, what happened to Jesse Jackson? He he started off calling the DLC the Democrats for the leisure class, as I, as I mentioned earlier, but he ended up helping Clinton lead this 1999 New Markets tour, which was Clinton going around the country with CEOs, visiting places with a lot of poor people and being like, we're going to make you not poor by bringing capitalism here. At this point, he's praising Clinton for having launched a, quote, war for profits, a take on a riff on the war on poverty, of course. And in 1997, and I remember this from my early years on the left as a teenager, crystal clear, the, the Rainbow Push Coalition launched what it called the Wall Street Pot. Wall Street project, essentially campaigning to make financial firms more diverse and and did that in alliance with with major financial firms amid welfare reform and NAFTA and everything else going on. When I was first getting involved as a teenager in the late 90s, at least in 
uh, I don't want to go all the way to the, the end of the 90s here, but for much of the 90s, there just wasn't organized resistance at any meaningful scale. Why? So this is a critical question. And I would say actually that the speech you read of Clinton saying, like, we're going to build a bridge, or was the bridge, no, he said that, like, because he, he self-plagiarized at various different points or had variations. When you read a lot of presidents from doing this, this book, I realize like presidents say the same thing like over and over again. Um, but he, that, he gave that at the Wall Street Project, which is a big project of, you know, of connecting, connecting Wall Street, with connecting Wall Street, with Wall Street CEOs. So it is interesting, like Jesse Jackson as a, I mean, in some ways is a, is an unreliable figure um, for standing in for the left in various different ways. And so he becomes a foil. And I do think, I do think his campaigns in the eighties are like profound. Um, and many of that actually, there's some of that had to do with Jackson himself, but I think largely, I think a large part of it had to do with the campaign infrastructure who sort of understood him as a vessel for pushing um, a lot of um, quite progressive policies. Including activists from the new communist movement and stuff. There was like a, a broad left involved. Who were involved in those, in those, I mean, it's these, these kind of big coalitions that came, came into being. Um, but, and, and I think he was a good, I mean, he's one of the things about Jackson as a side note is, I mean, he's an extraordinarily effective speaker. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that's another thing that actually goes as a, to like circle way back, um, to Clinton, um, is that for the, I mean, one of the things that people ask me, like why the new Democrats who are like a relative or DLC, who are like a small organization gained a lot of power, um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I think a lot of it had to do with Bill Clinton's, like they found the right figure in Bill Clinton, that he was a really good translator, um, and was able to kind of put, their message into a very kind of populist language. I mean, he was able to speak to multiple audiences very effectively. So I think that that like effective translation was really critical to the DLC. I think with Jackson, like he's an incredible speaker. Um, and so that was really effective. To your larger question about the left, this is a huge, um, you know, is the other piece of the left behind play on words. And something I was really invested in thinking about is like what happens to the left during this time. And like, I was, when I started doing the research, that was like, crucial to me. It was like, where is the organized, where's the opposition? Like, where's the pushback? Where's the opposition? Having studied at various different points, you know, like in the, when you look at the early, the sixties and you look at the democratic party and liberalism, there's lots of contestation and lots of pushback. And that just like that friction, like was not there as much as I, and what I came to is like, it was there on particular issues. Um, and so I even like one of the reasons I focused on particular things in the book was to kind of understand, just find those places. And so a big one is sweatshop labor. Um, and I do think around globalization that like sweatshops and um, and trade is a place where you see really, you do see sustained organized opposition. But that's not, till, but that's not really till like the end, the end of the nineties. It's not the end and it's, yeah, and it's not, and it's um, exactly. It'd be interesting who else was there and like what happened. And But that to me was the one there's the most kind of people from different, where there's the beginnings of a coalition coming together. But on the other issues, like my understanding, and I think what happened is that there's opposition on particular issues. So there was actually a lot of opposition to welfare reform. Like it was not like this, I mean, and you had like Jesse Jackson himself, Jesse Jackson, but the head of now and a lot of other people outside the White House protesting on welfare reform. You have the teachers, like I I look at charter schools and you have like the teachers, the teachers um, unions who actually have the biggest percentage of a voice in the Dem- of like of constituents in, in Democratic conventions. I mean, the, the power of the teachers movement, I mean, they're a huge coalition in the Democratic Party. They're the biggest, they're the biggest representative of labor. And I think I, I would actually be curious. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I think that actually might still be true. And so they are like a huge Democratic constituency um, who you'd think would actually be able to leverage the party in various different ways. And yet they're getting ro- rolled over on on charters and continue to be rolled over through the Obama administration. Biden is really the first 
Democratic administration since to actually, I think, more take teachers' sides on this debate. Yeah, and I think and I think what has happened, and so my read on what happened was like, especially after 1994, with the um when the Republicans take office is that a lot of groups were scared um, and they made the bargain that the Demo- that Clinton was better than the Republicans. And I think one thing that this Clinton came into office after 12 years of Republican control. And so the, the kind of take was like, this is better than we would get under, um, we would get under Bush. I think maybe the economy doing well could have played a factor in that too. So there's just not the same kind of unified coalition. So Welfare reform gets passed like two, like a few days before the 1996 convention, and you have all these people pissed off. And then they like like Jackson, like the head of now, and then they all go to the convention and endorse him and give speeches in his favor. And that's true of it's true of um, it's true of labor too. Um, and so I think the teachers unions that's that's very much what happens at various different points that they make that decision, and that I think that has a has a critical is a critical point. They're just not the same kind of unified opposition. And that enables that, I think that lack of pushback becomes really, really important in the um, in the establishment of the agenda, especially in Clinton's second term. Um, and so then you get to, by the time, by the time of the WTO, like that is a moment where there was like a sustained opposition of multiple different groups coming against and key democratic constituencies saying that we don't, we don't support this. And Clinton sort of gives them lip service, as he always did on things about trade, um, but never actually sort of takes it seriously or creates the kind of concerted types of things that that was advocated that were advocated for. Wow, you don't think feeling people's pain is is good enough? Um, <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about a few, just a couple specific policy issues that we haven't really gotten into enough depth on yet to close out. First, education, because that we keep circling around that. The DLC was one of the first political organizations to push for charter schools. And you write, quote, there is a wide assumption that Republican politicians and donors who wanted to privatize education were the driving force behind the charter movement. In fact, Republicans were largely late to the game on charters and through much of the 1990s promoted school vouchers as their favored form of school choice. The roots of charters lie deeper in the new Democrats' quest to reinvent the public sector and promote technology-based education as a route toward economic growth. How did charter schools do so many things at once for the new Democrats? One, emphasize a particular sort of reinvention of public education for this new, intensely competitive global economy. Two, perform a sort of sister-soldier moment on teachers' unions. And three, strengthen new Democrat ties to Silicon Valley, which there was both sort of a ideological convergence between and a very convenient economic cash donation relationship between. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating. I mean, that's where charter schools are such an do have this combine all of those various different aspects. So the first part is like to, to circle way back to our discussion um, of reinventing government. They're almost like the sort of quintessential example of that. And this idea that like, I mean, the thing about charter schools is that they are they combine they um, because they're still within the public sector. So I mean, they're privately they're they're privately or non run. Um, or not necessarily private or nonprofits or whatever it is, but they're still under public oversight. Like that sort of still fall, that falls in line with very much the kinds of things that the Dem- the new Democrats believed in. Also, the whole purpose of them was to make was to make schools more efficient um, and more accountable. That you can kind of improve education in this these kinds of mechanisms of, of accountability and efficiency, and that they can be measured in ways that like kind of 
public education was often seen not to be able to do. And the issue with this too is that like the they also become a way for the Democrats to have a say in the school choice conversation. So in the 90s, as I mentioned, the 80s and much of the 90s, the Republicans were pushing vouchers as their way. And that like the Clinton, the I see people the new Democrats did not fully believe in kind of a voucher model, or most of them did not. But they did like this idea of kind of something that would give people more choice that to like and, and freedom and so charters do that as well. The other side of it is that the through a variety of different reasons, factors, the Clinton administration became increasingly close to Silicon Valley. And there, it has to do with a kind of particular set of relationships that Al Gore made particular overtures. And like Silicon Valley as a, and it's not a unified entity, but kind of as a lot of the kind of main figures in, in Silicon Valley were very interested in questions of education, as they still sort of are. And the fact that like they have this idea that like they you, they need good workers. And so if the education system is bad, they're not getting the best workers. And that's why they have to go to like other countries, like they have to go to India basically to get their engineers. And it's also like ideologically validating for them, though, in some way. Totally. I mean, it's like it's like this meritocratic thing like this. And I think it goes to meritocratic thinking, like why education? I mean, that's why that's why I think I personally think that that's that's why both like the tech industry, but also why like mainstream Demo- Democrats often tout education because it's like the system which, which they succeeded in and they see sort of particular value in that um, and the, the like the value it should, that comes with having a credentials education. Not to say it's totally terrible. <laughs> and it's key to equal opportunity, though not equal outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about opportunity. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so um, through the this sort of set of conversations, and so the, the tech industry also becomes really interested in charter schools kind of through this, the, 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 like their connection. And the other thing that they really like about it is this idea that it's like, they also believe in efficiency, but also that it's like very disruptive and are, and are anti-labor. Um, and it's a way of kind of undercutting the labor movement's power and um, a variety of capacities. So it serves like all of those functions. I think what's important is like, it was never about kind of making a profit um, like this. Like when there are these kind of later charter schools have, there's like the profit component of it. But it was all these other ways of kind of bringing the market um, and the market to bear. And I think it does lead, but it does lead to this like tightening relationship between Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party that we see emerge over the course of the 1990s. That's a really important point. And it reminds me of an interview that we'll have posted by the time yours is posted that I did with Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And others explaining that, no, the prison industrial complex does not mean that it was mainly driven by the raw greed for profits of private prisons. In fact, that is a very minor role. I think there's likewise a, an understandable tendency for people to presume that the corporate interest in education reform is the raw profit motive, which it is in some cases, but that it does not, that's not the key explanatory variable. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really important point. Actually, I also think about from what I know about private prisons is really important, too, um, and have seen some of the work on that. But I think it is really true in education as well and, and and many other mechanisms. And we can talk about later, like one of the there is a couple of these programs like around public around housing. There is the kind of effort to make a profit and for real estate, make real estate industry make a profit. But I think on a lot of these other issues, like that's another thing I wanted to kind of when, when you the to go back to your initial question of what I was trying to do with the book and why it's under, it's important to understand this. Um, I think there's a way of reading the kind of Clinton Demo- neoliberal version of like it's all about profit mo- motivation and like they're just trying to like l- like make a lot of money. And I think that actually misses some of the other ways they're trying to work, which in some ways you could argue is actually it's more complicated and also could be argued as like more insidious in some like to some capacity. I think if you just think about it as like greed and profit profit motive, like that's an easier explanation to, to think about it. But I think this actually worked more insidiously because it wasn't just about profit. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that something has a key function within neoliberal capitalist political economy of a given era or moment does not mean that whatever that program is about the direct raw profit motive of of corporations in that particular sector. So there, like, like, like political economy is key here, but not in this reductive way. Yes, absolutely. I think that's exactly what was going on. Um, and so in charter schools are really, to me, a really like fascinating way to think about that because it, for the variety of different ways that they come to undermine public education um, in a number of different capacities. And some of this is another example, like a lot of that stuff that happened later, like, but the, like the roots, the roots really become kind of laid um, in the 90s. So, I mean, the, the big, the big expansion of charters doesn't happen until like the, like around 2010. And absolutely, I think the Obama administration played like a really critical role um, in the expansion of the charter movement. Um, but a lot of the kind of the, the like the, it, it set the gears in motion in the 90s. Let's talk about the New Democrats' major and unsurprisingly really disastrous impact on public housing. Public housing public housing began as a New Deal program that was really curbed its ambitions and size and scale, scope. Everything was really curbed pretty early in its development and underwent decades of economic disinvestment and stigmatization. And then under Clinton, tens of thousands of poor Americans had to leave public housing under this program called Hope Six, which raised these highly stigmatized high rises all over the country and replaced them with mixed income, low rise developments. But critically, thanks to a law from the 90s, did not replace them on a one for one basis. There was a huge net reduction in Section 9 public housing. You write, quote, By the time Clinton took office, housing projects like Chicago's Robert Taylor Homes had become to some monuments to the failures of the public sector and New Deal liberalism, while to others, they were symbols of decades of neglect of the poor by federal and local government. The Hope Six program became a key piece of the New Democrats' efforts to change the Democratic Party's image and secure the support of white moderate voters while simultaneously altering the image and function of public housing. And you continue, quote, the program sought to simultaneously make poor people into market actors, make distressed urban neighborhoods profitable, and use the tools of the market to make the public sector more efficient in helping low-income people. HUD, as as you write in the book, and this is some key history to keep in mind, it had already, since 1974, shifted in this privatized direction with the, expand, the creation and later expansion of Section 8 vouchers, which makes HUD into more of a subsidizer of private landlords than a builder and owner of public housing. So with that in all in mind, what place did the politics and policy of, quote, the end of public housing as we know it play for Clinton? It's interesting. I mean, and I, one of the things I would say, actually, similar to the charter school um, example, so there are two things that I is they were doing a lot of different things. So I think that's like one thing that like there's many different layers as to like the complexity of what these programs were were sort of doing for the Democrats and what they kind of symbolize. I think the other piece is that, but I think one key component of this, like education, like these are core liberal ide- and democratic ideals of like that it's that it's the re- responsibility of government to provide education, to provide housing, and this goes to welfare and how these sort of critical like that's one thing I wanted to sort of understand these critical kind of new things that we think of when we think of kind of what the what the Democratic Party provide has and has stood for or liberalism has stood for for a long time, how they became sort of fundamentally undermined. And I think one of the things is like in in memory, um, welfare is the thing that gets the most attention. 
But in many ways, like the effects of ending this, the public housing programs, I mean, I think I not to, I think welfare has done has been like, like an unbelievable harm. But welfare housing has not gotten the same amount of attention and has had a huge, hugely negative impact. Um, and that was one thing that I was just look sort of parsing it out was really important. And I think. The- yeah, because just to pause you really briefly, like really both in the 2008 financial crisis, when that comes, which, of course, is a housing uh, f- capitalist crisis rooting rooted in the housing market. And then again today with just real estate prices out of control, there is no public option to fall back on for most people. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, this goes to me when so with thinking about this issue of like and that like I always and I, I'm going to do it through housing to like a bigger point the book is trying to make is that like, because this is the pushback from the like, me, who the new Democrats who are now kind of mainstream Democrats would be like, because I've gotten this a lot is that like, you can say anything, you know, Clinton defenders basically, but the, at the end of the 1990s, like the economy was really good. And so like, ultimately at a macro level, you know, like if you think of macro terms, like poor people are in a better place. But the reality is like, because for all of these different programs, like sort of fundamentally took away critical aspects of the social safety net and then left people open to kind of new types of private market predation. Um, and housing to me is like the really critical place to think about that happening um, because you take away, you took away huge swaths of public health, like public housing. And this also goes, it's not just the financial crisis, it's actually the pandemic too. I mean, that they're like had their, I mean, that, and you, like thinking about the amount of housing insecurity that has been produced and living in a place like LA, where there's just a, like, a, I mean, where the housing crisis is so just all encompassing and all around us, the the lack of public housing is, is, is like essentially criminal and how little that has become is even part of the kind of public conversation again. And I know it's been really fascinating that housing as an issue, I mean, it's important that housing as an issue is actually coming back on the kind of national political agenda, but there's actually been so little attention to like rebuilding massive, like doing public, like big public, large scale public housing building. So instead it's, you know, like giving more vouchers or doing other kinds of like relief to like, you know, like sort of rent relief, but like actually the kind of investment that gets needed is to build, to come back to like the fact that basically the federal government has not been building public housing since the 1970s. So that is part of what happens and then eradicates all this housing. And I think it's a really interesting because there's still this narrative. I was actually just looking at a review of the book, this new great book, Thinking Like an Economist. Oh, I've heard really good things about that. Yeah. But the review is, I mean, review is mentioning sort of pushing back and sort of describes this idea that like when you think of failures of the of the failures of liberalism, public housing is always brought up. And like when you like the, the Robert Taylor homes were like a complete failure and that becomes like a critical sort of story and narrative that I think is actually still part of our popular conversation that has been like a legacy of this moment. Everyone watch the documentary, The Pruitt Igo Myth, all about it's amazing. <laughs> um, it's yes, no. It's it's incredibly. It's a, it's an incredible sort of complicating that um, this set of questions. So, I the thing that I think is really important about public housing too. With so it it fused all of these different things that the Clinton administration was trying to do. One is this: all these questions about sort of reinventing government, making it more efficient, turning to turning to the private like public private partnership as the kind of critical solution. You turn to mixed income, mixed use, and then this notion of kind of giving people um, what ends up happening. I mean, so the taking them and the classic example, which I use in the book, is the example of Cabrini Green in Chicago, you know, which not coincidentally was on really prime real estate um, near the loop, but was these huge, these like these huge buildings, which were then 
torn down. And the idea was that people could move back in or they would have a voucher that they could use um, in the private in the private um, market. And I think one of the things that comes up with this, the, there are a couple of things about the way the program was gone and the fact that you brought up the one-to-one replacement, which is huge, but also that there was like increasingly narrow categories as to who had asked, who had access to that public housing. One strike and you're out. One strike and you're out, which was like, so the, so it, it actually like combines with these other kinds of moments, other kinds of things we think about at the Clinton administration. One was um, the, um, was crime. So it builds on the three strikes you're out, one strike you're out. If you were convicted of a crime or one of your relatives of, you were evicted from public housing. That also, and then also, you could not get Section Eight a Section Eight voucher. The other one with welfare reform is you actually had to you had to hold a job or show you were going to be able to hold a job. So it's a very limited capacity of people who who had access to this, but it also didn't address the fact that like in many cities did not have the affordable housing necessary to for people to be able to use their vouchers. And it has this vision of kind of a rational actor who's be able to go into like various different communities. So it acts as though like segregation is not like a huge aspect of this how the um the residential real estate market that like someone could just go in and like get a apartment wherever they wanted. Um and so in places like Chicago is is like a critical place, but I think it happened all over the places that like you then it like reinforced residential segregation um in many different places and just put people in like an incredibly difficult position, unable to find housing. And we could, but shouldn't talk about this forever. But one other thing to highlight about Hope 6 is that the very design principles, new urbanism, were anti-modernist and fetishized small town life. They were hostile to the very built environment of black poor people who lived in cities. No, it's a profoundly middle, like white middle class aesthetic. I mean, the idea of like um, new urbanism is like it's I always call it like, new suburbanism. Um, and um, it like it's so I mean, the it's the one that's been like sort of um, made fun of of new urbanism is Seaside, um, which is where um, the Truman Show is was built. But like that's the new kind of new urbanist principles. So they had all these ideas like built on Jane Jacobs of having like front that you need to have front porches and you need to have particular kinds of style of housing. But it is it's, it was deeply anti-modernist and was all of these kind of townhouses that were supposed to kind of into like into the um, into the community and to be but mostly to be attractive to white middle class people who to move back into the city of Chicago or whatever Seattle or whatever city like you can pick your city. But the other thing that Clinton, part of these Clinton programs of Clinton housing is also this idea of kind of that in the 90s, there was a concern that um, homeownership rates were going down. And so to try to make more people homeowners, um, and so there's a national homeownership strategy, which is another part of the kind of public-private partnerships, um, which was efforts to kind of um, loosen um, loosen a lot of aspects of the housing industry to and, and the mortgage industry to help in, encourage people to get um, access to mortgages. And I don't, you can go on a lot of like conservative conspiracy websites and cl- blame that for the ha- like the financial crisis. I don't think that that was true, but I do think it is in- it's indicative of these efforts that like that did create a kind of situ- situation of vulnerability that become uh, basically borne out in the 2008 financial crisis. We've touched on this a, a bit already, but you have this interesting chapter about the huge scandal around apparel sweatshops in the 90s, something I remember well from being involved in students against sweatshops type type work back then. But instead of doing anything to actually regulate apparel production, unsurprisingly, Clinton created the Fair Labor Association, this entity for corporations to self-regulate third world labor conditions, all really perversely, while intensifying immigration raids at garment factories here in the U.S. You write, quote, The Clinton administration had also been rapidly signing trade agreements with countries with large emerging markets, such as China, India, 
Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, and South Africa. The exposure of sweatshop abuses at garment and shoe factories around the world challenged the maintenance of these promises. And as you mentioned earlier, it was the anti-sweatshop movement and then the larger global justice or anti-corporate globalization movement that exploded in Seattle. It was really that that began to bring the Jackson coalition of the 80s, perhaps you know, somewhat different, but really bring that sort of coalition back together in opposition to Clintonism in a way that felt like earth shattering for someone who had was new to the left and it felt initially like it was a very marginal project. Why do you think that left opposition to Clinton emerged around the issues of globalization in particular in the way that it did when it did? And then why do you think that movement failed to sustain itself? Why would it take another decade really for a more coherent American left to reemerge in opposition to neoliberalism. Well, and it's fascinating too. I mean, the question around like because I've thought about this a lot too with like the to a sev- for several different of those those issues and questions. The one that I find fascinating is how the sweatshop movement has like fallen out of the kind of popular story. I mean, so that my students don't know about like don't remember or don't know it. Even I was been surprised when people who some of the people I read the like who've read the book like didn't who are younger than I am so this makes me sound like I'm a dinosaur but like I was a like a freshman in college and the um at the in 1989 and so I just like it like this was so central to kind of my coming of age and I wasn't it sounds like you were much more involved than I was in it but I think that what happened I, mean, I think it was this brewing opposition and this sort of sense of kind of just general unfairness that this system that all these things that had been promised that that globalization was doing was not succeeding. And in many ways, I think that this I mean, I think, as you said, like the sweatshop, the sweatshop issue in itself was an entree point to a much larger set of issues. And I think there had been opposition to trade issues around NAFTA and the kinds of coalitions around, I mean, tenuous coalitions around from the environmental movement and, and labor and labor pushing on that. And I think that, I mean, one thing that I think labor became more global in its, its, in its organizing over the course of the 1990s, that that helped. But I do think that like the issue of, this, of sweatshops was such a tangible way to kind of question what globalization was actually, what like what the Clinton administration, and it's not just the Clinton administration, but like the broader kind of what, what you know, we think of as the Washington consensus was promising that globalization was doing. Um, and, you know, this was bringing security to people in the, like, and like, it would, you know, in the, um, throughout the global South, it was bringing democracy and all of those things were not, was not happening. And it was just a sense of like, this is creating just like immense injustice. So, I mean, maybe I'm giving my own, I'm telling my own version of that story, um, through this, this, through this narrative. But I think that is what led many people to just sort of question that this was actually doing all the things that it was promising to do. And that, did create, I mean, some awakening. I mean, something that had to be kind of contended with um, and I think opened up kind of new questions of like, this is this, like this thing that has to be dealt with. The issues of like why it didn't sustain itself, I think are a couple of things. I mean, and I've, I, one critical component, I think was 9-11, um, which I think took the, I think took the, was this, this breaking point and sort of shifted directions in various different ways. And so I mean, I think there's becomes a kind of set of people who maintain, who, who's to sustain interest um, in the question around, um, around globalization and, you know, continue to devote their lives to it. Um, but I think that a lot of people in the left turned to the war movement um, and that created dissipation. I think they also just like that it dominated, 9-11 dominated the news so much that it was very hard to get us like get, you know, get, sort of come in and do anything. 
I, the other thing I look at in the book is I actually think that like a lot of the critiques became appropriated by the social responsibility, like the sort of ideas of corporate social responsibility. And that is this kind of thing that emerges in the 2000s, um, the 90s and the 2000s, that like corporations are a source of good and are doing all these different things. And I think that took away some of the power of the movement. I think the other thing is it's very hard to organize around changing econo- the global economic policies. Um, I mean, I think the bet, you know, you can, it's just a sort of challenging trade policies is a really, really difficult thing to do. Um, and that created certain kind of capacity and certain kind of difficulties. But I do think the issue of like what happens to the, the, those sort of pieces in many ways of what kind of reemerges or exists. But I think it's, I mean, especially on Occupy and then in, um, in the Sanders campaigns um, of this left are there. Um, and it's, it's a triggering of another kind of moment of economic injustice and economic crisis that leads to the kind of, that, that kind of, that type of thing. And, and I think just more, more building that occurred um, that led to kind of the a more sustained coalition that we've seen in the last decade. My question would be like, what, sorry, and I, I'm now going to turn into interviewer, but what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think 9-11 was really huge. I also think that the American left as it in the very weak post-Soviet, post-neoliberal turn form that it exist that that existed in the late 90s sought its electoral expression, I think with good reason but not much success in Ralph Nader's 2000 campaign. I mean, what's the left supposed to do after Bill Clinton has taken over the Democratic Party? Um, but then the Nader campaign ends up not um, achieving its goal of winning 5% to get the Green Party funded at a national level. And then there's 9-11, and then there's the war in Iraq and a briefly vigorous anti-war movement that collapses when it fails to stop the war. And there's very little movement, of course, to the invasion of Afghanistan prior to that. Those protests, I recall, were very, very small. And so it it takes the financial crisis, but not just the financial crisis, because the sort of left populist energy in response to the financial crisis goes towards electing a very neoliberal Democrat, Barack Obama, president. It's not till after the Tea Party with the emergence of Occupy that you really see the emergence of a coherent American left or just the beginning of the emergence of one. It was a very long decade. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's my analysis of it. And it is really interesting, like the Obama question too, of what happens, like why. And I mean, it, it, which has to do with an, like, probably a number of different things of understanding that not as having more pushback as well. Um, and, you know, some of that was the sort of the personal biography component. I think probably similar to the Clinton th- issue is that like after having eight years of Bush, the people were just really tired of Bush. And I, one thing I will say, like going, this is from teaching recent history, and as a side note, this is a total tangent from the book, but like, I feel like what's happened because with Trump is like <laughs> this way of like thinking that the Bush years were not that bad. And like, when you really go back and look at it, it was really bad. Um, so that's like, I feel like it's not like the like, oh, he's sweet and like paints now. And like, he's not, you know, he's not like. He still has a higher, bo- he still has a know, higher body not- count than Trump. <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, it's not just, it's not like, you know, in comparing them is like in various different ways, but I think there's been like a forgetting of the, that, how bad that decade was and like what actually was going on that is like part of it. And that probably also explains the Obama win in some ways that like this, what he was better than what the Bush administration was doing. And there, I, I don't know if there was a sense, like I can't totally, I was distracted by grad school, um, but in like the actual 2008 moment that like, 
in the financial crisis, like I think there was there were people pushing at various different points that like you need to go and you need that there needs to be more. But it was just so it was such a sort of moment of shock that that led to kind of a lack of really sustained opposition from to the Obama administration on the financial crisis that doesn't really emerge for a couple of years. Well, and he also the response was so anemic because he was still captured by the very new Democrat logic that Robert Rubin helped cement in the 1990s, prioritizing deficit reduction. Of oh, all totally. Overall things. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's the, that's the approach they took. And they like went back and it's all the same. It's the very, it's all the people, the same people came back um, and helped set the policy and that there was this idea like we need to get, I mean, I think there's this, there was still this idea in the, in some ways capturing the, um, you know, you know, for all the jokes about like the things that all the terrible things the Clinton administration, Clintons were saying about Obama, like there was still this idea, like we need to get back to that moment of the Clinton years and like, we'll use Obama as a vessel to do that. So um, I think that that was, I think there's a lot of that happening too. Another sign, I think, of the social, the left, in particular, like the socialist anti-capitalist left's weakness in the aughts leading up to the 2008 election was the sort of broader progressive coalescence around Howard Dean's campaign, which reminds me a lot of McGovern in a way, in the in the sense that Dean was deemed this radical because he was anti-war, but in fact, he was like a pretty down-the-middle liberal. Yeah, totally. And, and actually, I've been thinking of this because I, of the, that 2000, 2004, like for, I don't know, it's not, it wouldn't be a sequel, but I've been really interested in that, this question of like what's going on in the party with, with the Nader and, and Dean campaigns, which are quite different. But I think that that's right. Like the Dean, like what, what was, what actually was happening with Dean and like how transformative is that? But I think you're like, he, that's what was proven to be borne out that it was not this, like that, like he was not as radical as he was being presented to be. Indeed. One could say the same thing about the Nader campaign, which I was very involved with as a volunteer, as a 17 year old by looking, kind of comparing the politics of Ralph Nader and Bernie Sanders. I mean, Ralph Nader obviously had better policies and a better agenda than, than Gore or, Bush did, but compared to Sanders, he had much more of like a good government anti-corruption discourse rather than like a really transformative social democratic or even socialist vision. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I haven't I, I think that that's there's a lot to that. Um, and that's who Nader was, was and is. One other one last thing about the, the politics of globalization in the 90s that is occurring to me as we're speaking is that all these politics around NAFTA and everything is that you see these forms of American politics that really don't fit within this narrative, this kind of false retrospective, this mythic retrospective narrative that people often have that I think frames this country as having this kind of normal Democrat versus Republican politics that Trump then explodes in 2016. If you look at the politics around trade, in particular in the 90s, what you see is the emergence of all sorts of weird tendencies that become more and more important in American politics over time with the Perot and Buchanan candidacies. Yeah, I th- and you know, I think there are these moments like to come, and I don't, you know, sometimes you don't want to take like the lens of the present to go back to the past, but I think that there's a way in which that there was more, it was more complicated often. And I do think like all of those campaigns do show signs of this or that those were like ten like sort of tendencies and campaigns. I mean, and there's very much a lot, I mean, on, on and I will say this, I it, like, I want to say, I guess you asked my, for my final thoughts on this is, I mean, first of all, I think one thing that is true about the the story of the Democrats 
under you know under Clinton and then beyond is that they it was a Demo- it was a Republican Party that has changed a lot. I mean, so one of the things that always surprises me, like looking at the '90s and when I was looking at this book, is there's actually like a fair amount of bipartisan cooperation, um, especially on things like microenterprise, like which like Republicans were on board with. I mean, there's there's a number of things that, like so we can think it's the roots of polarization and um, and all of those kinds of things. But I do think there's a component of like how much the Republican Party has changed so much um, over the course of this period that's really important to think about and understand. Um, within that, though, I will I will peg that to your point about Buchanan and various different other things is that like Trump did not come from nowhere. Like it's like, I mean, that there's the, like this, these politics were very much brewing. Um, and I think the other side of it and like the fairly obvious part of like where this fits into my book project is that like the fact of the matter is that like the Clinton, the other side of globalization is that like this pissed a lot of people off and made them really, really angry. And I think the generate, like the the number of people, and so that goes to both sides of who, of both Trump and Sanders, campaigns emerging in 2016 of just saying like the Democratic Party is not providing what it has said it's going to do. It is, it is like, it has left us behind. Like it is, it is not, it is not doing, is not fulfilling any of these kinds of promises. Um, and here on two different planes are people who are offering to do to sort of fulfill those types of things. So that's how I understand like that moment, the kind of reemergence of both the left. And I don't even know if you call Trump the right or whatever it is like that sort of comes comes out, um, but does come from the kind of other side of so it's both the kinds of ways that people are left vulnerable by these policies. But I also think it left it created a kind of severe alienation for the Democratic Party that might not have been necessarily always clear in, in like the the like 2000s during the Iraq war, but definitely become true by 2016. Well, Lily Geismer, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is, I, I so enjoyed our conversation. Lily Geismer is a professor of history at Claremont McKenna College, where she researches and teaches about recent political and urban history in the United States, with a focus on liberalism and the Democratic Party. She's the author of Left Behind, How the Democrats Failed to Solve Inequality, and Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, Washington Post, New Republic, Jacobin, and Dissent. I have linked to her first dig interview in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tammuz Frankel and Mariel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, also please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends to listen to the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.